are listening to Rising from the Ashes Premium Podcasting. Oh, absolutely. In fact, it reminds me of a story that was uh, uh, written by uh, the Egyptians about the discovery of words. And uh, the god of wisdom, Jehuti, who everybody calls Toph, which is the Greek transliteration, uh, Jehuti, uh, he walks into the main temple, uh, probably around Memphis, or Menfet, as the, uh, the original name is, and he, there's Patar on the throne, and he says, guess what I've come up with? I've come up with words. And uh, Batar looks over his wife and looks back at Jehuti and says, well, you are indeed very wise. Not only are you a master astronomer, a discoverer of uh, numerals and uh, mathematics and all the other wonderful things of the universe, but now you've found a way for humans to communicate with each other. But beware, uh, because although words are easy to communicate, they are also mischievous and you can uh, actually use the wrong word to communicate uh, a right action. So we prefer to communicate with sound because sound is what it means it's self-referencing so go ahead and play with words but uh, you're now one step away from the truth so we prefer to communicate with sound Uh, so the energy co- coalesces in the middle and it spirals up the spine and it goes up to the sky. So there is a kind of a connection between above and below. And it, they really were building this. Um, that it was the Templars and the Cistercians that were involved in this building process that they learned from the Arab people who had borrowed their information from India and Egypt. And so they were following an old recipe. Uh, they just couldn't build pyramids anymore in Europe. Otherwise you might get the sensation of burning skin uh, courtesy of the Catholic Church. So they'd read this the old uh, paradigm you see they redid the old technology by saying hey we'll convince the Pope to let us build these buildings because we'll say it's uh, to the glory of God of course we're not telling them which God it is uh, it's not their God uh, and we'll make it in the shape of a cross because that appeals to their concept of uh, the crucifixion which is also a, a complete uh, corruption of what really took place so we prefer to communicate with sound special interview with author and documentarian researcher Freddie Silva. The second time on the show today, it is Homie Romy and Indy Sage chatting with Sir Freddie, going in on the Templars. Well, it's an honor to bring this show to you today. Hope that you are doing well, wherever it is that you are. So happy to see that Rising from the Ashes is able to be listened to all around the world. That makes our hearts so happy. Also correlates with our guest today. He's a worldwide traveler. 
So, my friends, I want to thank you again for being here, being yourself, doing the things that you do. You make life wonderful. Yes, you do. So we're bringing really pretty sounds with this one today. Yeah. Just breathe it in. Feel it. Feel the love. We have some really fun stuff in store for the show. Some fun changes that we'll be making about the platform. Really looking forward to sharing that with you guys. We are going to bring on a couple more people to the team and have more regular shows with different deep dives and topics, panel discussions, as well as author interviews and researcher interviews as well. We're going to keep a little bit of the wraps for now. Have some more guests for you for this month regarding the Templar topic. But just you wait. The new platform of Rising from the Ashes will arise from the ashes. A transmutation. A shift. As everything does. And you will have Dan and I and more friends. That's what it's all about. More amazing, smart, beautiful people to create conversation, to talk about the things, reality as a whole. And if you'd like to support us, you can go ahead and do that on the Patreon. Link is in the description. Check out our YouTube channel. Also, subscribe there. We have video content on the YouTubes. On the YouTubes. You guys want to support the show also we have a merch shop you can go and check the link below email us let us know your thoughts opinions guests to talk to if you want to come on the show if you have things you want us to look into if you just want to tell us about your day it's all good or email us also in the description. Make sure to check out Freddie Silva's website. If you haven't already, invisibletemple.com. The link is also in the description. Give it a click. I'll put some of this some of these sounds at the end of the interview as well you can go ahead and listen to them for another eight minutes without further ado we give you today's interview with Freddie Silva enjoy everybody welcome to rising from the ashes it is i homie rummy and i am here today with smoke the indigo dragon indy sage uh, we are on a mission today speaking with freddie silva 
a returning guest, and it is quite an honor to be here. Um, Freddie Silva, for those that don't know, <laughs> well, get on board, my friends. He's a prolific author of many great books, Scotland's Hidden Sacred Past, The Missing Lands, The Divine Blueprints, The Lost Art of Resurrection, Secrets in the Fields, What I Learned from a Dog, Chartres Cathedral, <laughs> how chemical indeed, and what we will mostly be talking about today is the First Templar Nation. And among being a prolific author, I'm going to uh, start my first question with, do you like, do you enjoy making documentaries or writing books more? <laughs> oh, I love it. It's a very uh, wonderful uh, process, uh, sometimes cathartic. It kind of helps you also process your own stuff, I find. Uh, uh, but the best part is that I actually get to go out and do this stuff. I get to walk all the stuff that I talk about, or most of it anyway. Um, I spent, I think my record is 67 airplanes in one year, which is a bit over the top, I have to say. <laughs> and I'm feeling very guilty about my carbon footprint. I wish they had more uh, high-speed train around the world, because I love train travel. Uh, but no, I, I really do. Uh, I, I like uh, sort of communicating, and I, I enjoy the power of word and the mystery of, and the mystery of words and uh, and I especially enjoy uh, sort of going into uh, very old dictionaries and looking for words that have been forgotten which are so mellifluous and sonorous and I try to put at least one word in every chapter that we've lost track of and people keep sending me hate mail that said it's taken me a month on Google to try and find this word it's not on Google you made it up well actually no it's in the Shakespeare's sonnet of 1600 and blah 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 and it means this uh, yeah, I, I really do like uh, enjoy the sort of the, uh, the sort of use of language and the communication and the appropriateness of language, to, and especially uh, to communicate things which are no longer around about the ancient past. So yeah, no, it's uh, my work is very much fun. It's hard work, but it's great fun. Well, it's not it's not easy digging up the um, the ancient wisdom because, in fact, hundreds of years ago, if not thousands of years ago. What we're talking about is also ancient wisdom at that time. So as we continue yeah. further into today's society where we are seemingly, you know, riddled with ignorance and um, a bunch of other confluence that we, we're going further away from these, these ancient <laughs> mysteries and they seem to get continuously covered up. And so work like yours is very, very, very important. And um, after today, I do suggest that people subscribe and go and check out some of your other conferences that you've given specifically in great detail on this, because I will say this, Mr. Silva, you have a very grounded way of communicating and the way that you, oh, well, thank uh, you. the way that you do present is is very grounded and it's really easy and nice to listen to. Also, the accent helps. Uh, <laughs> oh God, yes! I'm never getting rid of this stupid accent. Uh, <laughs> well, you are quite a, a third of my life and born in Portugal. It gets very confusing. Let us All start right. there. The show today. <laughs> oh, quite the word. I love how you mentioned etymology and going back to the root of language and the, the history of words. It's very powerful, and a lot of wisdom can be found through that.
Oh, absolutely. In fact, it reminds me of a story that was uh, uh, written by uh, the Egyptians about the discovery of words. And uh, the god of wisdom, Jehuti, who everybody calls Toph, which is the Greek transliteration, uh, Jehuti, uh, he walks into the main temple, uh, probably around Memphis, or Menfet, as the, uh, the original name is, and he, there's Ptah on the throne, and he says, guess what I've come up with? I've come up with words. And uh, Batar looks over his wife and looks back at Jehuti and says, well, you are indeed very wise. Not only are you a master astronomer, a discoverer of uh, numerals and uh, mathematics and all the other wonderful things of the universe, but now you've found a way for humans to communicate with each other. But beware, uh, because although words are easy to communicate, they are also mischievous and you can uh, actually use the wrong words to communicate uh, a right action. So we prefer to communicate with sound because sound is what it means. It's self-referencing. So go ahead and play with words, but uh, you're now one step away from the truth, uh, the origin of things. And I thought, that what a great quote, you know. And I think Chihuti must have left the room going, hmm, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Uh, <laughs> what yeah, have I done? Eh? What have I done, Judy? What says. have I done? I brought civilization to its knees. But, but it's true. I mean, for example, I mean, I was just uh, reading a comment that someone left today on uh, my Facebook page about I was discussing the idea of angles in, in, in buildings. And they're saying, well, I'm, I can't help thinking that angle and angel are connected. Well, they're not. There's no relationship. I mean, angel is a transliteration of the Greek agelo, which is a messenger, a, a go-between. Uh, so a messenger and an angle have nothing to do with each other. So, yeah, we start to lose that connection, especially today when we're constantly on the phone and we use language for, you know, ease of uh, and speed of communication. And uh, we're down to like two-syllable words now on cell phones and on texting. We're losing so much of the language and the meaning. Uh, I mean, if, if any of us were to go up to the North Pole and hang out with any Eskimo tribe, and we'd say, well, how's the ice today? And the Eskimos would just laugh at you. They have 33 different words for ice. And depending on which one it is, it could be the, mean the difference between life and death. Because there are different, different forms of ice, which are things that you step on. And there's a, a word for ice that you don't step on because you're going to go right through it because it's very thin. Mm. So we, we are losing that sort of uh, ability to communicate in depth. I, I can't agree with you more. I'm very curious about this angles and angels uh, comment that somebody left on your Facebook page and to get a little bit more of your opinion on that because, um, you know, looking at how not only words have started to funnel themselves but architecture and the meaning of architecture and sacred architecture itself seems to have yeah. funneled its way and um <clears throat> you know you have a uh, brutalist architecture being uh being more modern and 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 a lot more of you know modern uh wood which there's nothing wrong with wood um, but it doesn't hold the right type of uh electrical or magnetic energy that stones used to and that's why yeah. stone masons and stones and and that work was very 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 important um for marking different magnetic anomalies across the planet and which is something that you also teach as well as building uh these different beautiful stone circles if i'm not mistaken and yeah. in some of your courses um but one of the things that i've kind of come across is that i thought angels and angles were almost connected in a just like in an esoteric sense, not like a hundred percent completely, 
but because I've heard that, you know, energies can get stored up in the corners and that's why round, uh, round pieces of architecture were better for like the swirling and whirling of energy. So what is, what is your take on that? And, and how disconnected are they? I know that in the, uh, just a little side piece right here. Um, I know that in the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, he mentions uh, an association between angles in his writings about the fallen angels. He says that, uh, found I that time moves through strange angles. Yet only by curves could I hope to attain the key. Yeah, using the spiral of life, the golden ratio. Uh, yeah, angles can kind of be trapping. It depends how you kind of work uh, the energy. Um, there was something that the Russian scientists found in the 50s. Um, the Russian scientists were way ahead of anybody mm -hmm. else in the world in terms of esoterica and uh, trying to make a connection scientifically, at least to the modern age. And they found that by reading things about how the Gothic cathedrals are constructed and all the stories about healing and altered states of consciousness, they actually took it seriously. And they were able to figure out ways to measure brainwave patterns uh, of people standing inside Gothic cathedrals in Europe. And they actually found uh, that um, the angles at which the, uh, all the pillars are placed because you, you walk down the nave, you think, well, these are just pillars in a straight line. But no, there is a, a sort of a geometric matrix that holds them all together in terms of a, a mathematical ratio. Uh, the relationship of the transept of the nave, the positioning of the altar, everything is uh, uses a hidden geometry. Uh, and they found that people inside these buildings, um, and especially when they chanted Gregorian chant, which is the kind of the pop music of the day, uh, they found that your brain waves go up 400% above normal waking state. Uh, so you're literally having a heightened state of consciousness uh, inside the building. And they transferred that concept to Bulgaria, where they began to build uh, hospital wards shaped like pentagrams, which is the usual symbol of healing around the world, which is also, of course, the, the standard geometry of uh, all living organisms. And they found that people's rate of healing went up dramatically because the way that air circulates within the pentagonal shape creates a certain effect on the human body. Uh, and by the same thing, but if you put um, uh, schizophrenic patients inside trapezoidal shaped rooms, the rate of their healing also goes up dramatically. So we now have a tie between modern science uh, figuring out why angles are so important in sacred buildings. Uh, it's the way things move, the way air and molecules tend to move, but it's also the way that uh, they interact with a person that goes into these spaces because you've built up the exactly the same geometry. Yes, and that, that brings up something kind of crazy what you talk about in a couple of your books, especially the, the Templars and the Lost Art of Resurrection. But, you know, somebody with schizophrenia or mental health issues, you know, putting them into a box and it not maybe working the same as these ancient art of this, uh, this death and rebirth, uh, situation that, that, that the Templars and other ancient mystery schools were using. Right. Like if you, yeah. you can't shove somebody in a box and, and have them come out reawoken, uh, in, in today's society, isn't that kind of funny? Well, yeah, you just, I mean, you, you can, but you have to go into the depths of the Guatemalan jungle or uh, deep into uh, the Peruvian Amazon 
to still go for these shamanic processes. And in fact, the, the, the process was still practiced in uh, Lake Michigan uh, about a hundred years ago uh, by a tribe whose name I do not recall. Uh, 1890, they were still uh, taking the initiates and uh, they, they dug their own grave, literally dug their own grave in the, in the soil. And uh, they were covered up to, uh, you know, right up to here uh, with earth. And they left the body for three days. They had taken their poison. Uh, I don't know how to work out how to dilute the poison because there's a fine line between death and uh, a simulated death experience and it's usually a two percent dilution of the uh uh, the, the chemical. So they must have had a lot of trial and error, I imagine. Uh, <laughs> yes, bring in the next prisoner. Um, but the, the fact is that you left the uh, the body for three days and you came back. Uh, unlike a shamanic state, you actually physically left the body and you came back to tell the story and the way that the shaman brought the soul back into the body uh, to let the soul know that the time is up and you've been out long enough was to take a little deer skin bag and put little rocks in it and it pelt the people uh, that were lying half buried in the ground and that kind of brought them back into uh, the the mortal world a bit of a rude awakening uh, but still being practiced in america uh, in 1890 around the shores of lake michigan and so yeah but today you'd have lawyers who'd say well you can't just give someone a poison put them in a box like the king's chamber and expect them to have a near-death experience and then expect them to come back three days later um, it just doesn't fly unfortunately but people do pay a lot of money Money. I think the going rate now for staying overnight in the King's Chamber is about $14,000. And uh, every once in a while, every three or four years or so, uh, some person who doesn't know what they're doing and they think this is such an easy, jolly little time, mm -hmm. um, they go into the box, they'll, they'll take something, uh, they don't actually mention what they take, and they leave the body. Now, leaving the body is easy. The problem is getting back into the body. Uh, and uh, the um, guards will, uh, you know, uh, open up the gate in the morning they find a dead guy inside the box uh, because uh, they haven't found their way back so it happens quite regularly actually uh, I'm sad to say and in fact during one of my tours I did warn one of my participants about the dangers of the box now I've done this uh, also quite not knowing what I was doing or what it was capable of so someone's looking after me somewhere someone in the management is looking after me because I was able to go into the other into the other world come back uh, I think it took about eight minutes. Uh, and I tell you, it was an extraordinary journey. Uh, I'm still processing after all these years, but it was a very interesting journey. Um, and I did tell people that it's, uh, it, I'm not really allowed to go into that box anymore because I liked it so much that given the chance to do it again, I'm not coming back. Uh, I found a place where there's no pain. Uh, I feel very loved and uh, the views are absolutely wonderful. Um, but I guess my job isn't done here uh, because I'm still, I'm still living. Um, but the point is, I, I'm not allowed for more than 31 seconds inside the box. And uh, someone actually dared me on the last trip to go in, into the box. And I said, well, I, I really shouldn't go because I like it too much. Uh, I said, I'll tell you what, time me. Uh, if uh, once you get to 31 seconds, just wake me, just shout into the box. So I have like you know, 20 people surrounding me looking in. Uh, and by the way, that box in the King's Chamber is exactly the length of my body and the width of my shoulders, which is very, very strange. Um, it's almost like I built it some other time in my previous incarnation. Uh, but anyway, uh, I remember just sort of leaving and the, the walls of the box are getting discolored. And literally, I just uh, shook myself back into consciousness. I could feel myself leaving. And someone said above me, wow, that's good timing. I said, what? 
that was exactly 29 seconds. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I can actually feel myself already slipping out of the box under the right conditions. Uh, and it does require a certain condition in order to do this. So it's still alive. That technology is still around today in certain parts of the world. And it's, uh, and it's very interesting. Uh, Plato uh, did it. Uh, Pythagoras did it five times. Uh, he couldn't get enough of it. He was a real out-of-body junkie. So today's uh, idea of going into the Amazon and having ayahuasca retreats is kind of a, a simulation of mm -hmm. what it's, it's not the real thing. Uh, you should be taking a drug to induce images because the images are really coming from your chemical interaction. These were induced near-death experiences. It's very, very different and very dangerous. And it took three years to learn the protocol in order to do it properly. Mm -hmm. Proper training, you know, getting taking the time to actually prep not only your yeah. body, but your mind, your spirit, and then... All this. Yes. And still the heart and the control fear. The first thing you have to control fear. If you take fear with you out of body, you won't come back. Uh, the big trap, fear. Mm. Yeah, they talk about that in the teachings of Don Juan about the Yaqui Indians uh, uh, taking on an apprentice from, from the north, uh, an anthropologist trying to learn their ways to do the peyote ritual and they bring him through being able to overcome his fears. It's in a series of books. He has to go through a lot to overcome his fears that they worry Absolutely. that if he doesn't, he won't come back from the other side or that demons can yeah. snatch him up and take him into the nether world. Exactly. So, but there's definitely some truth to that. I've had experiences myself, the out-of-body experience and my spirit was called to the sun and it was a beautiful place. You know, I wanted to stay, oh, yeah. but I was sent back here with a mission and my work's not done yet. Much like uh, you said yourself. And that was the point. I mean, it wasn't just a jolly that you went on. You went on. You went there with a specific aim of acquiring something. And a lot of the people mm -hmm. that we take for granted in the historical world, like Leonardo da Vinci, who hinted at the fact that he, he went through the process, and he would have been with uh, part of the Rosicrucian order at that point, mm -hmm. uh, or the Invisible uh, College. Uh, they were kind of same people using different names to get around the church. Uh, which is a bit of a problem back then. Um, the idea was that you went to get information. Uh, you should uh, relate it to uh, who you are as a, as a soul so you can come back knowing who, uh, your purpose in life, which is very important. Uh, but the other one was to do with your work and your purpose in this lifetime. And uh, there were a lot of famous architects uh, and leaders who actually did this in order for them to conduct their affairs with greater affinity to the natural world around them and to the bigger picture of the universe, not just what's happening here locally. Everything has repercussions so they went there with a specific aim to see the right people to get the right information and find the right techniques to recall everything i mean you know how difficult it is just being in a dream state and the car alarm goes off and you come back into the body and you go i was having a great dream but you know i can't even remember it uh, yeah that's the whole point you have to recall everything when you're back in the body and there's one chamber uh, at uh, Saqqara in Egypt which is the uh, pyramid of Unas and of course he's not buried there he's buried somewhere else uh, which is always kind of funny um, and there's a big box there uh, made of black granite but if you go into this beautiful chamber it's covered from floor to ceiling with hieroglyphs and it was uh, translated uh, and uh, once you start looking for the metaphors and the symbology of what they're telling you it talks about the journey of the of unus who actually goes into the other world but he arrives alive and at the end he's expected to go back into his physical body and continue his daily duties so not really a place of burial and uh, Tutmosis the third's chamber in the valley of the kings which is the only one that no 
one's buried, by the way. It's a completely anomalous chamber. Um, it gives you the 700 and, let me see if I can remember this, 741 um, uh, uh, phrases that you have to recall in order to go to the other world and find your way safely back. So, yeah, three years to memorize all this stuff. And uh, they were very, very serious. And the best part is, it said at the end, that the, whoever understands these mysterious symbols is a well-provided light being always able to speak to the discarnate and the living alike, always able to be in two places at the same time, proven to be true a million times. And this was in, what, uh, 1300 BC? So how long have they been doing this ritual, I wonder? For ages. Yeah, there's so much powerful uh, energy in these pyramids. And I know you might have heard of the uh, archaeologist Siemens drinking out of his wine bottle at the tip of the Giza Pyramid and holding up his pointer finger and feeling sparks on his finger, yeah. uh, electrical <laughs> pricks on his finger, and there were sparks coming out of the wine bottle. And so there's there's energies there that we don't really understand. It hasn't been fully studied. Yeah. I know the Russians are studying torsion energy in the pyramid structures. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I mean, they're always located like every other sacred space on the face of the Earth. They're positioned on the Earth's uh, telluric current. So where these currents cross, you'll find a standing stone, a pyramid, a temple, Stonehenge, and so forth. And then you've got the quartz in the stone. So you've got all that amount of quartz, which is piezoelectric by its own nature. Uh, so you've got the pressure of the stone, which is building up this big battery of energy. Uh, and once in a while, it actually discharges visibly. Um, I was... Uh, I found myself in the Giza Plateau a few years ago, uh, just before starting a tour, just to get my brain into sync. And I wandered out way out into the desert, away from all the tourists. Uh, I like my peace and quiet. And I just sat there on the hill, just meditating, just looking at the, the Giza Plateau, asking for information about how, uh, you know, what was this really all about and letting it all go. And then I kind of felt that I'd overstayed my welcome. And I walked back, there's nobody around. The uh, horses have gone back to the stables. The camels are already going downhill. There's not one person out there. And I walk by the uh, middle pyramid, and I'm uh, alone, except for one guard dressed in his galabea, and he has a little bag with him. And um, he kind of just looked at me from afar, didn't pay any attention, stops in the, at the base of the pyramid, puts down the bag, and he just bows like this. And then he picks up his bag, and he continues towards me. And in his broken English, we had a conversation. He said, the djinn, uh, and, he, and he was showing the, how he respects the djinn. Well, the djinn is the spirit of place. And uh, he was saying that sometimes uh, during the right conditions, the building is so charged with the spirit of place that it creates a sort of spiraling, visible spiral of energy that goes all the way around. And it looks like a big green ball of light, about so big. And I used to see these in, in, in England, by the way, around Stonehenge and Avebury. The farmers know all about these. Um, I got photographs to back this up. And they said once in a while, this gin, this spirit of place, creates itself visually and it dissipates at the top of the pyramid and goes boom after about 15 seconds. Wow, so they respect it. These guards, these old-fashioned people with their old-fashioned galabea, they respect the building. They know what's there uh, and there's an awe about it But uh, and they, they give it the proper respect, uh, which is a lot in the, um, the Muslim world where nothing exists before Allah or Muhammad. So for them to pay respects to the spirit of a, an ancient monument is uh, quite an achievement. And the, the ancient uh, architects of, well, not so ancient as the architects of the, of the pyramids themselves, but understood this um, spirit of place as well, right? And that might be why 
um, cathedrals and rotundas also happen to have antennas or spires or that large pole at the top to yeah. either attract or discharge those types of uh, energies. Oh, both. I think it's both. Uh, I mean, if you look at some of the cathedrals in Britain, which have been very well studied, uh, they all sit on architecturally unsuitable terrain. They all sit on swamp. So you've got this massive ah, amount of stone, swamp. and the building's going to sink. But incredibly, they were designed uh, to float on the swamp. Uh, if you go to the uh, crypt of Winchester Cathedral, uh, which is a beautiful cathedral in the south of England, and uh, you go into the, in the crypt, and uh, literally there are these massive oak beams. I mean, really big, thick oak beams back in the days when oak trees were big. And the building itself literally is resting uh, on wood, which is sitting inside a big uh, amount of water because it's on swamp, the building is floating. So the lawyers came in with the architects one day and the engineers and said, well, we can't have beams of wood inside water permanently because it's going to rot the wood. Well, but the wood still looks like it's in good condition, you know, after 1,200 years. Uh, and um, they said, well, it doesn't matter. It's a, a health and safety issue. So they started taking out one of the beams. Oh and now the cathedral God. is listing. It's like, put the beam back. They knew what they were doing. Uh, but that's also part of the technology because, you know, these telluric currents are electromagnetic, but also the land on which they are, they exist is made of limestone or chalk. And when mm -hmm. you have water percolating through limestone, you get something called absorption, uh, which is an electrical charge. So the reason why you have this thousands of sacred sites in the south of England, uh, the world's deepest chalk aquifer, is to take um, charge of that electrical current that's naturally available in the landscape. The rest is just geometry and the stone mm -hmm. boxing in that, if, uh, that energy. So it's housed and spire, by the way, is a corruption of the word spiral. Uh, mm. So the energy coalesces in the middle and it spirals up the spire and it goes up to the sky. So there is a kind of a connection between above and below. And it, they really were building this. Um, that It was the Templars and the Cistercians that were involved in this building process that they learned from the Arab people who had borrowed their information from India and Egypt. And so they were following an old recipe. Uh, they just couldn't build pyramids anymore in Europe. Otherwise, you might get the sensation of burning skin, uh, courtesy of the Catholic Church. So they redid the old uh, paradigm, you see. They redid the old technology by saying, hey, we'll convince the Pope to let us build these buildings because mm -hmm. we'll say it's uh, to the glory of God. Of course, we're not telling them which God it is. Uh, it's not their God. Uh, and we'll make it in the shape of a cross because that appeals to their concept of uh, the crucifixion, which is also a, a complete uh, corruption of what really took place. So it was very clever. It was a bit of a, a, a joke amongst the uh, Cistercians and the Templars that they were trying to bring this new resurgence of spirituality in a time of Europe when things were really quite dark, including the fact that uh, the main item on the menu for dinner was human flesh. Mm. There's a lot of cannibalism being practiced at that time because things were that bad. So yeah, yeah no wonder they were popular. They were bringing the light back into existence. There's a, there's a, a lot of beautiful things to touch on in that, that's <laughs> that awesome statement. And I, I want to talk about the um, because I, we we're, we're going to talk about the Templars today, everybody. We are going. Oh, to that's right. That. Yes, but but <laughs> half before, an hour later, <laughs> uh, you know. But this this idea of building on the swamp and talking about you know the potential before the patriarchal churchy 
takeover right of these ancient lands um and and a lot of times in ancient celtic belief there was the lady of the swamp and the swamp was a very spiritual place that had Mm. the divine um creatrix type of energy come from it and maybe the type of gin in that european stronghold there and that just blew my mind i'm going to look a lot further into that these cathedrals built on oak stumps oaks being the tree of the yeah. druids and then them being built on swamps which is also known to be very sacred to the celtic peoples as well mind-blowing absolutely yeah. mind-blowing and also not to mention or not to forget to mention that limestone like you said being one of the major components in sacred sites and you know in dowsing and finding these ancient telluric spots but also bathing culture of ancient past used to be so prominent and and building baths on top of limestone and then soaking your body in that to mm. maybe encourage an electrical charge or a, a consciousness download. But we don't bathe like we used to anymore. But in England, bathing culture is still live and, and prosperous. Is that I would try to. Uh, a lot of the rivers are quite polluted now because of the rise in uh, herbicides and pesticides and uh, also cow uh, effluent, uh, which is basically destroying the, uh, putting a lot of nitrogen into the water. Uh, the, I think uh, New Zealand is actually a great place for that. And I've, I've been there many, many times. I just came back from there. And uh, the water there is still, by and large, very, very pure. And it's, uh, there's one spring that I went to with it, which is sacred to the Maori. And without knowing any of the history of the site, I just walked there. It's like it's like being on drugs. You're immediately alive. There's so much uh, negative ions in the water, and of course, it's that wonderful cobalt blue that comes right out of out of limestone again. Uh, literally, you're just sitting there, getting high on the water, just moving, uh, and you can see about 15 feet to the bottom of the pool. It's so clear. Um, but yeah, you feel that there's something very profound here, and the Maori really did uh, take care of that uh, location. And it was a wonderful moment where you actually get to experience something in its in its primal state. And, and of course, the South Island of New Zealand, especially, has been pretty much unadulterated by human uh, folly uh, since it was uh, inhabited thousands of years ago. Not only uh, twelve hundred years ago. There's another story behind here. But uh, yeah, in Britain, the, the difference is that the, they practice a lot of the old Celtic traditions there still. So if you wander off to places like Cornwall and Devon, uh, which is still kind of rural. Uh, in their outlook and and of course islands most of Ireland as well and Scotland those holy wells are still very special and the sacred springs are still revered and they are honoured by people who go there exactly for the right reason and there was a friend of mine who did some interesting research on this he actually took a look at the um, quality of the water coming out of holy springs and uh, sacred wells and he found that when you compare it to tap water when you look at it under the microscope the uh, tap water that uh, you drink uh, has uh, uh, water generally is made up of swirling vortices you know it has these spirals of energy which gives it its life force well the stuff that comes out of the tap is basically non-vibrant it's just dead it's, it's been going through pipes it goes through lead when it comes out of the the pipe and you look under the microscope nothing is happening well the samples that came out of the holy wells and the sacred springs had millions of little vortices running around in very excitable states so the water itself is alive so when you drink it especially when it's very cold uh usually about 34 degrees uh 
something happens to the chemistry of your body as well. You feel much more awake. Uh, and what it also is doing now that we know that we can program intent into water, uh, thanks to uh, Imoto-san, who died a few years ago, um, he showed the way that you can actually put intent into water and it changes the crystalline structure of the water. So you are drinking the prayers and the wishes of the people that came before you. So that's why it's very important to keep that uh, efficacy going by going to these places and putting the intent into the water. And you're literally blessing it so that the next person will also benefit. So it's still Absolutely. a lot. It's a very, very old technology that goes on um, to the point where if you don't have the water uh, in your sacred site, you don't have a temple. Uh, even in uh, Monument Valley, which most people think is sand, uh, I was taken by a, a, a local shaman called Leroy, uh, who has a very funny story of his mother uh, having... Um, uh, relations with the French milkman. He doesn't understand how he became known as Leroy, and he's a Navajo. He's got a great sense of humor. And he said, you know what, uh, I'm going to take you to our altar. I said, oh, I'd love to see the altar. That'd be a great privilege. And uh, you drive between these two enormous sand dunes, and uh, right out of the, uh, the sand is this crystal blue uh, stream that goes on for about 100 feet before disappearing back into another sand dune. And there's a juniper tree, a massive juniper tree growing in the middle of Monument Valley. And uh, I've sworn to secrecy. I can't tell you where it is. And it's not easy to find, even when you're a four by four, it's well hidden, but that's where their temple is, you see. Even in the middle of the desert, you've got to have the water as a foundation. Temple without the water is not a temple at all. And that exactly. is something very, very wonderful to take and soak in everybody that is that's absolutely magical and beautiful because, you know, this earth wouldn't be earth. It wouldn't be the temple of our planet, of our home, of our, of, of our existence without the water itself. You That's know? a very good point. Yeah. It's, uh, and yeah. it's, yeah, I, I, uh, that's really beautiful. Um, and the fact I mean, that you, and two thirds of your body your, is made of water. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And we're you just, are the temple. we are the temple. Well, <laughs> I love that you, you know, you just, I, I'm curious about when you broke the veil of when you decided to really follow your passion and your spirit and when you decided to really go forth into these journeys. Um, and when were you ever an ignorant kid that was just, you know, oh God, yeah. pissed off at the world and you know, <laughs> what, what happened to break your, your um, ignorance and then follow your spiritual bliss? I was I was listening to Uriah Heep and uh, Lawnmower Death and the Dead Kennedys because I was uh, I was pretty angry. Uh, I really was. Uh, I did not like being in the world. I found most people to be really quite unpleasant. Uh, you know, I usually give people the benefit of the doubt that they usually un that people are usually generally kind and nice until they prove otherwise. Uh, so I had a pretty a, a tough time growing up, but I always had this connection to something else which made me unusual and weird, and that is I liked the ancient things. Uh, I felt an affinity for the ancient world. I was drawing pyramids when I was free. So there was something in there. I just had blocked it out. And it was when I was in Chicago and uh, I was in advertising and I, has, I had the charge of uh, advertising NutraSuite until I read the report from the Russian scientists of how bad all of these artificial sweeteners are and what they do to your body. And I thought, I can't advertise this. This is rubbish. Uh, and I got fired for having a conscience. And at that moment, I went home, picked up my books on pyramids that I'd never bothered to read. And I hadn't there for years. Mm. And I thought, 
you know, why can't I do this for a living? How do you make a living doing this? And at that moment, I got involved in crop circle research, uh, literally. Uh, I saw something on television, and I knew exactly what it was when I saw this first symbol. And uh, it became my first book. It became an international bestseller. And then the next stage was to literally show how the crop circles in ancient temples are literally mirrors of each other. They're built on the same laws. And that got my interest back to where I really was in the uh, in the early days of my life about the ancient places. Why they're so mysterious? Why is all the magic? Uh, where does it come from? And what is it doing? And that opened up a huge portal of uh, information. And I haven't stopped for 25 years. It's still going. Uh, and like we were saying earlier on, I still don't know everything and I don't want to know everything. I want to have that curiosity to keep uh, pressing ahead to find out why we were given this legacy. Uh, because it is a legacy. It goes back at least 12,000 years. And it was left here by people who really understood the uh, nature world and uh, the human spirit. And that the human spirit would also be failing at this particular junction in our existence. So these temples were designed to last until our time. And you look around now, we're asking questions about what are pyramids about. We're, we're, the, the tourism industry that goes to these sites is beyond belief these days. I mean, to the point where even I... Uh, I, I don't want to know. Uh, 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 I don't want to go there at certain times of the year because it's just full of people just doing selfies, and uh, you know, and that's fine for them if that's your thing. But more people are curious about the ancient past, and even NASA now is acknowledging that there's a relationship between ancient calendars, ancient sacred places, and what's happening in the sky uh, and up uh, and the Earth's position in space relative to near end of scenario catastrophes. So all of these things are related, uh, and I think that we're part of a a sort of a big consciousness shift is helping people understand why we got this legacy and why we're suddenly attached to it. Uh, so it's uh, very magical. It's like understanding the past to know yourself so you know how the future is going to figure out. There's so much magic in that. And uh, we spoke recently with uh, somebody about juridic wisdom uh, pertaining to the idea that water holds the memory of earth and that sacred trees carry that memory from earth up onto the plane of the surface for us to access and we can commune with those trees uh but mention of uh, living water earlier reminds me of victor schauberger i don't know if you're familiar with his work oh that's great yeah yeah and he he uh he really brought to the public a great awareness of living water and how to channel water in which ways that keeps it living and swirling in ways that keeps it vital yeah. and uh, he actually made um, pipes for plumbing that were circular and spiral in nature so that we could keep that living water alive and yeah. bring it to ourselves through uh, our I've plumbing. tried it I've actually tried it there was uh, a couple of people in London who imported them from Germany and they put those spirals into the uh, um, how would you describe it? It's the entry pipe that goes into your house, basically. Mm. So you have to sort of uncouple a couple of things, put the spiral in there, and then put it back in. And I tell you, the difference between the water before and after is like drinking lead compared to oxygen. <laughs> I mean, you are you are literally getting high on the water that's literally uh, being put through an entire uh, logarithmic uh, logarithmic spiral, and it does it does a huge difference to the water and the way you feel. Uh, I can vouch for that. Uh, and they hadn't. They gave me a blind test, by the way. They, I didn't know what I was. Why I've been giving so many glasses of water? For, I'm not really that thirsty. Uh, <laughs> then I realised, where did this come from? It's like, wow, I feel like I'm high on drugs. And, well, let me tell you where that came from. Uh, and it's absolutely true. His uh, observation is absolutely correct. 
That brings That's, that movie Water Waterboy from Adam Sandler to a whole <laughs> other esoteric level. I haven't seen that. I can imagine. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, pretty hysterical. Uh, when I when I drink water, I try to ionize and alkalize my water uh, with lemon and sea salt, and it makes quite a difference. And for it me, does. it's so much more palatable that way. Yeah. Um, there's so many more things we could also do to keep that energy alive in that water. Exactly. So let's so back let's, to the Templars. Yeah, let's get into <laughs> the Templars. Right. So I want to, if I can segue with a with a question here funny. or a place to start for us. Um, you you found your study uh, of the Templars by trying to study your hometown, right, or your homeland. You were born in Portugal, yeah. um, which you're quite a, you're quite an anomaly yourself, right? As you are just a world traveler, you were born in Portugal, you lived in England, and now you're an American citizen. Portugal. Oh, it's a great place. That's wine. <laughs> Most attractive women. Uh, no, um, no. It, it was it was a very simple project to kind of buy me time to figure out what the next big project was going to be. And I figured I should probably have this wrapped up in a couple of months to find out why there's an obsession uh, with the Templars in Portugal and how they were so involved in the formative era of the country. And then it went out of control. Fifteen years later, uh, I kept digging up more stuff and more stuff. Uh, I had to put the work aside for a little bit because there was something that was stopping me from proceeding. And it was my uh, understanding of sacred space. Until I totally understood how sacred space worked, you won't understand the Templars. Because they were not just building uh, castles here you know, willy-nilly. Wherever they built the castles, they were protecting the original temples dedicated to Isis or her regional doppelganger. Uh, so they were very much girly men in that respect. Uh, they were very much into the uh, feminine side of nature and the, and the feminine uh, veneration of nature. And I figured that's unusual for a bunch of guys that were supposed to be hired killers. Well, it turns out they weren't doing much killing at all. They weren't doing much fighting. And most of them were actually Cistercian monks to begin with. And I thought these things are very weird. And then I uh, discovered that Portugal became the first independent nation state of Europe, uh, which is also unusual. And the king, uh, the first king of Portugal, once he establishes the country and removes most of the uh, Arab people who'd invaded it, you know, back to Morocco, he then does something really foolish. He gives one third of his hard won uh, kingdom to the Templars. And I thought, that why now? Why would you give a third of your country up to a bunch of guys that just you know helped you you know get rid of uh, of the Arab invaders? And then of course all of these questions started to sort of uh, uh, overlap. And I realised there's a big process. And one of the things that I learned when I was at school in London when I was age twelve was my history teacher taught me that if you want to find out the truth of how things are, you've got to go back eighty years in the past to find out how they became that way. And I decided to take exactly the same process, find out who the Templars were, where they came from, who were they connected to, and then it opened up a huge can of worms, which led all the way back to the Essenes in, uh, in Jerusalem, and then it went back to the people who were practicing uh, traditions uh, in India in 5000 BC, and from there to Japan in 8000 BC. They were following a certain spiritual doctrine. And so to cut a very long story short, and it is a very long story. Um, the Templars essentially were the new uh, bunch of people who uh, had been patiently waiting for the right moment to end up in Jerusalem on the back of the Crusades 
to uncover a bunch of scrolls that needed to be deciphered by a cryptographer in what became Belgium. And I thought, that's not interesting. Why would you need to... Was this the treasure that they were looking for? Because they were already rich. They didn't need money. They didn't have to go all the way to the Middle East to dig up uh, sewage-infested tunnels in Jerusalem to get more money. They already had money. They didn't need more money. Uh, And I thought, this was weird. So the secret of the treasure is actually in the word itself. Uh, uh, Treasure comes from Tesauro, which is the foundation of the word thesaurus, which, of course, is a library of words. Uh, And that's exactly what they were looking for. They were looking for all of these scrolls, which had all the processes of leaving the body, like we were talking earlier, going to the other world and coming back and being declared risen from the dead. Uh, That's where the phrase comes from. And it was all to do with an inner... A discovery of the self and your position in the bigger scheme of things. It was a very closely guarded secret, which is uh, one of the world's oldest traditions. Uh, and the way that they chose Portugal was because it was far away from Rome, as you could get in Europe at the time. They wanted a place to practice this uh, concept because they wanted to bring a new utopia in the middle of this desolate environment called medieval Europe. And they succeeded for about 80 years because the Pope uh, died in around 19, uh, sorry, 1138. And, uh, Uh, The one that was put forward as his successor uh, was very cunningly put forward uh, by Bernard of Clairvaux, who essentially is the godfather of the Templars. You've got to know who Mm -hmm. he was to understand who the Templars were. And I read 400 of his letters to get under his skin, to get into the psyche of the guy. And uh, he volunteered uh, this person for Popedom, and uh, he was very adamant about it, and he had a lot of pull. And uh, they said, okay, well, he's got good credentials, let's put him in. Well, this Pope uh, in 1139 was a Cistercian monk who essentially was one of the Templars. And the first thing he does, he gives the Templars international status and freedom of prosecution from the church. They could do whatever they damn well pleased. And for 80 years in Europe, they had complete uh, reign to start a new utopia. I mean, get this. They uh, created a welfare system uh, so that if you were sick, you'd have a hospital to be treated at. Your children, even though you might be poor, would have a school to go to to learn reading and writing and all the important things in life. The peasants were taught how to do agriculture and animal husbandry and actually graft plants so they can get a fruit out of trees, which back then was a real problem. Uh, And they also had a system whereby once you reach a certain age of decrepitude, you'd be looked after. In other words, you'd be given a pension. Well, this in the middle of Europe, in the Middle Ages, was extraordinary. I mean, they thought that these people were on drugs. And of course, the peasants and most of the nobility, they gave the Templars what little money they had, and that's how they became rich. Because they were creating these spheres of utopia, which then created these perfect little states uh, called villages and towns. And then they would tithe part of the money to the next village so that they could raise that from the dead. And that's how Europe began to grow as a cohesive uh, autonomy in the Middle Ages and also created a kind of a mini Renaissance. Everybody loved them because they also talked them about spiritual independence, that the fact that your temple is in here and you can communicate with, you know, God, whatever you want to call it, not by calling on a pope or a bishop or paying a priest, but because you can do it too. So they were kind of Buddhists and uh, Zen masters as well. Uh, They were fascinating people and uh, they eventually, when they were caught by the church, um, they changed their name to Scottish Rite Freemasonry. So they're still among us today. The the name of Portugal sticks out to me um, as 
the port of Gaul or the Gauls. Uh, was this a home of the Celtic tribes at one point? And um, were, were those traditions still honored? It very much so. Uh, I mean, Portugal's always been this sort of haven for people who were heretics and people who did not conform. And uh, Julius Caesar, uh, I was reading his uh, notes on the, in the invasion of Portugal, and he was frustrated. He said, you know what, there's a group of people called the Lusitani, which means the holders of the light uh, in northern Portugal, who refuse to uh, be ruled, and they refuse to rule over others. In other words... Mm respect other people as you respect yourself and we should all get along just fine and it, it created a huge problem for the roman legions because they couldn't actually convince people to go fighting in portugal because they know they weren't going to come back uh, even uh, the women joined in the fighting against the romans and they kept them at bay and it was only because of uh, betrayal on, in the inner ranks obviously someone got paid some money that's how they all fell but the concept of this sort of celtic and gaelic tradition of uh, non-interference and spiritual um, sort of independence was very very strong up until the uh, Templars arrived so I'm not surprised that they chose that part of the world and eventually um, uh, Porto which is the original town upon which Portugal uh, is uh, based also becomes part of the story of the Templars because as we know they love working with metaphor and symbol so when uh, the first king of Portugal issues a third of the country to the Templars the seal on his uh, deed which I was able to actually touch which is incredible it shows the word portugal uh, as an anagram with an r in the middle and if you read it carefully in portuguese it means uh, portu ugral which means through you is achieved the grail so you are actually the person uh, through which the grail works and you'll discover the grail for that inner journey but also it was his way of saying to the templars who helped him create the country and of course he was a member of the templar order anyway um, which is revealed very uh, sort of subtly in one of the deeds that he gave he said he was giving the templars you know it's through you that we're going to achieve the grail because it was you who brought the grail into portugal and again the grail is not a physical object it's a uh, it's a spiritual attitude that's what they were selling that, I love that. Yes, yes, go ahead, sir. Now, I have uh, two small questions. Uh, now, when the pr property was given to the Knights of Templar, was it given by Alfonso, the son, the young son, uh, who started his dictatorship at age six, or was it from the father, the uh, Henri of Burgundy? Henry of Burgundy began the process. Uh, and uh, he basically was trying to establish this sort of uh, uh, kingdom of conscience. But uh, he died pretty young, uh, very, very quickly. Uh, so mm -hmm. the emphasis really went to his son, who was 13 at the time. So he basically had to fight his own mother uh, to reclaim the country that was actually his by law. Uh, his mother was slightly not of uh, sound mind. Uh, in fact, I wrote her story almost as a bit of a joke. Uh, she was totally self-deluded. And uh, But no, he was a very patient young man that by the age of 17 takes the reins of government. And eventually it was through him and his collaboration with the Templars, which his father had brought with him from the, uh, the Near East, from Jerusalem, uh, along with another group of very influential Burgundians who were essential to the creation of the Templar order, because there was three orders involved, the Templars. There's the Templar Brotherhood, uh, with a core group of nine people, possibly 11, uh, and also the Cistercian Brotherhood, who were the foundation uh, of the Templars and the spiritual foundation. And then there was the Order of Sion, and all of those three people worked together 
uh, as like a, a holy trinity to create the illusion that there was a Templar Brotherhood. It was actually three different brotherhoods working together, putting their fingers into all kinds of little pies and creating mm -hmm. allegiances to bring about this utopia. So it was a very patient, a very patient exercise, which... Uh, Let's see, it took about 40 years to really bring to fruition. So they were in no hurry. They knew they were going to get there. So a lot of the, like the exoteric stories of the Knights Templar in today's understanding is that they were a group of, you know, warrior monks that were fighting for the Pope at the time and, you know, going out and slaying in the crusades to get the churches right, you know, on the behalf. But, you know, in that, that story that you told us that they had, they had to do workings to get the right Pope in order to, to actually honor these uh, sacred mystery, uh, sacred mysteries and get the right text and the right words in the right places. Um, how many, how many popes were actually a part of that honorable line and in a part of that um, that service? And how many were a part of this this service? How many part were uh, a part of that that church that actual tyrannical takeover? Uh, there was one pope that was actually benevolent to the Templars because he's essentially uh, a Cistercian monk who was one of their own kind. Uh, so they didn't have much time in which to get their uh, their, their stuff together uh, and really make a, a dent on the political landscape of Europe. Uh, you couldn't do anything in Europe at the time without the church saying, bless you. So if you look at the, um, the terms of the treaties and the speeches that were done by Bernard of Clairvaux and Hugh de Payon and uh, some of the founding members of the Templar Order, they paid lip service to the church because they knew they couldn't fight it. I mean, you ha you're fighting a massive army of people. Uh, the Crusades had nothing to do with the Templars. Uh, they're a completely different thing altogether. And most historians completely have glossed over that. They think that the Templars went to the Holy Land to fight. Well, actually, no, they weren't. Uh, they were not fighting at all. Uh, they were doing a lot of other uh, stuff behind the scenes, which had nothing to do with the Crusaders. Um, there were Templars that eventually were uh, associated with uh, acquisition of lands. But that's not what Hugh de Payon's mission was all about. And there's a letter from him to Bernard of Clairvaux that clearly says that he was having terrible trouble maintaining discipline and spiritual discipline within the Templar order because they needed people to do the hard work. And a lot of them were just a bunch of glory hounds that went to the Middle East to kill off Arabs and uh, become rich. That's not what the Templars were about. Uh, so the uh, Bernard of Clairvaux also was writing these sermons so that Hugh de Payon could have a kind of a spiritual doctrine that he could teach the new uh, incoming recruits that you didn't come here to get rich, you didn't come here to kill people, you came here to protect something much greater. So there was still that sort of problem that, that he was involved with uh, in terms of the uh, creating the, the Templar order. Uh, and he succeeded for a, a certain amount of time. Uh, and again, this was a very short period of time in history uh, because after the Cistercian Pope died, the, uh, the new popes were trying to put their fingers and their noses into the Templar order to find out why they're so popular and why they're getting so rich and how come we don't get a percentage of all of this? But it was completely corrupt. And that they had informants that tried to go into the Templar order and they didn't get very far because the Templars, just like the scenes before them and all the uh, people who did these uh, esoteric traditions, uh, which took three years of learning how to find the true mysteries of the universe, the first year was a period of observation. So 
They will teach you certain skills which are veiled in metaphors and symbols which you really didn't know what, what they meant because they hadn't explained them to you. And so they um, would observe you with certain tests and tricks to find out if you were cut out for this and if you had the integrity to learn the second year of uh, level of instruction where the deeper mysteries and the real truths of the universe really came true. And it, it trapped all of these people who were plants uh, by the church to the point where, uh, and I remember what, uh, later in the, uh, the Templar story, there was one particular clergyman that said, well, they're worshipping a devil called Baphomet, and that's it. The uh, water went out, the uh, church said, oh, we have to round up the Templars, they're worshipping a devil called Baphomet, and that's a heresy, they're going to be burnt alive. Well, if you ask any Arab person uh, what Baphomet means, they'll say, well, yeah, it's a corruption of uh, Baphomet, and it means the source of wisdom. And it related to the one object, the only object the Templars really cared about, and it was the mummified head of John the Baptist, who was the source of their wisdom, because he was the one that was carrying the male bloodline of the tradition mysteries, which could be traced all the way back to Sumeria and all the way back to Japan in 8000 BC. He was the important guy along with Mary Magdalene, and it was these two people to whom they dedicated all of their churches. No churches were dedicated to Jesus, uh, which is almost like uh, you know giving the finger up to the, the church who held Jesus as being the supreme leader of their, uh, their ministry. Of course, the Templars and everyone else said, actually, no, he was the important guy, but he wasn't the important one. It was John the Baptist who was the important one, and Mary Magdalene. So that's where this story kind of went about this sort of half-truth of the Templars that we've ended up with. Was did they worship Siras or um, Sophia? Sophia? Well, Sophia is sophist. It's knowledge. It's wisdom. It's the internal mm. knowledge that one acquires from the experience uh, of the mysteries teachings. Uh, and uh, there was a metaphor that's actually written in the Arthurian tradition, which is essentially a retelling of the story of Isis and Osiris about the resurrection of the individual, uh, where the initiate goes through 12 tests, uh, uh, which really will find out what kind of person you really are. And if you overcome those tests, you become a better person. You are purified by fire and you get to marry the divine bride or the woman in the tower remember that uh, mm -hmm. there's the, the uh, stories in Europe of the troubadour going through the uh, forests overcoming these obstacles and he has to rescue the uh, lady in the burning tower because the lady represents wisdom in its all its form in its natural form so when the initiate married the bride at the end of the story it wasn't just a happy ending it's the fact that he married wisdom itself uh, and that was one of the things that was tantamount as a metaphor uh, for uh, describing how the initiate had gone through the journey of uh, experience of the mysteries teachings, left, and then did the final initiation, which, which was to leave the body for three days, come back into a cave or a box, and then be declared risen or be declared alive. Uh, and at that point, he was said to have married a divine bride. Um, I don't know how this was worked out, but a long, long time ago in deep history, the ancestors reasoned that in order to quantify something that's in, in the invisible universe to people who don't understand, they figured out, sitting around a campfire somewhere, that how can we describe how all of this really exists to someone who doesn't understand? And they reasoned that in the beginning, before everything was created, there was this creative source. Let's call it God, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and God had to know everything in order to create all of this, you see. Uh, that's the ultimate paradox. The world is created from a seed, and yet it is already 
knows what it's creating. And because everything in the universe was created out of darkness, it means that all the wisdom of the universe once resided in the dark. So what better way to describe this to people who don't understand than by presenting the universe as a a creative source, a woman who is pregnant, and then painting her skin black. And that's where you get the description of the black Madonnas in uh, European cathedrals. It wasn't because she was from Ethiopia or from Africa, uh, although, of course, they had their own traditions too, which are very, very similar. But the black skin identified the fact that she was the mother of uh, the source of all wisdom that once resided in the darkness before light and sound created the physical universe. It's a very elegant way of describing a very undescribable process. That kind of reminds me of the word night itself. Um, yeah. I've been wondering about that because, you know, you have, uh, you know, the Pope dressed in all white and he's, and he's exuberating of the light of the sun and there's all the sun worship and sun worship, but the nights are always generally um, associated with mystery, but it, it, it quite literally is the word night itself. It's quite funny, isn't it? Yeah. I think, I think there's a metaphor in there. I haven't quite figured it out yet. I'm sure there's almost like a little bit of an, an in-joke going on. <laughs> uh, and also you have to understand that it, it, the word doesn't really come from, uh, from English. It comes from, uh, uh, from Latin, from Greek. You've got to find the origin of the words in what they meant originally. It's a bit like angel, you know, agello, which means a messenger, nothing else. And that yes. gets eventually twisted into a being with wings and stuff mm. like that. So, yeah, it's, uh, you've got to look at the root of these things, but there's usually a bit of a joke going on, and they like being, they like playing practical jokes on the establishment. That much I do know. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Uh, and, yeah, speaking of that uh, joke on the establishment, was Jesus a Templar? Was, oh, he, no, was no. he associated with this, these people or these just... No, that was a thousand years before the event. But his connection was that he worked with the Essenes. Uh, and uh, we know this because the Essenes were called the people of the way. And that was the tra spiritual tradition that they were protecting. So again, three years that you had to learn this information. You dressed in white robes. You had three levels of initiation. And the last one was the deepest mystery of all, which is, which is the leaving the body and coming back to tell the story. Uh, so Jesus once gives this away when he's walking through a crowd and says, uh, follow me, I am the way. Okay, so he's basically telling people, I have learned the mysteries teachings, I represent the way, and if you follow me, you can be like me. Uh, the story is actually much more complicated than it's presented, but that the way is originally traced back to Japan in about 8,000 BC. It's called the Way of the Gods. And there were 17 teachings brought by two antediluvian gods that escaped the sinking islands in the middle of the Pacific after a global deluge took over uh, the whole world. So that was the end of the Younger Dryas 11,000 years ago. And they arrived on the coast of Egypt, prepared with all of this uh, etymology, all this history and mythology and spiritual doctrine, and they called it the Way of the Gods. It eventually becomes known as Shinto. Uh, the main religion of Japan a long time later, it eventually becomes the Tao and the Tao of uh, China, and it eventually works its way westward. And the meaning of Tao and Tao is the way, uh, literally the way of the gods. So Jesus was part of that tradition, which the, which the Templars inherited. So there is a, a connection over the course of time. Absolutely. I do some teachings of ancient philosophical Taoism at my local spiritual church, and I know that Montak Chia is a formidable uh, proponent of Taoism and a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine. But uh, he's done some uh, deprivation chamber work for 
several days um, to go through a process much like the process through which the initiates went in the Knights of Templar. And uh, it said that ancient Taoist sages would also do this, uh, be able to leave their body and travel to the stars uh, through the sun and moon. And uh, it's still practiced today by uh, Taoist sages, yeah. which is amazing. Oh, absolutely. And people who do Kriya Yoga also approximate the process from what I'm told. Um, I've come across one of the, uh, the surviving uh, Templar crypt. Uh, it's, uh, it's in this castle keep in Scotland on the Isle of Mull. It's very rare, um, pretty much out of the way. And uh, it's supposed to be described by archaeologists as a well, except no water can get in or out. So it defeats the purpose of having a well in the building. <laughs> you can get water in or out. And uh, the, the building is also surrounded by fresh water on both sides, but no water goes in, uh, mm. which means that uh, if you're surrounded by people with bows and arrows, they can just starve you to death within 10 days. Um, now, the box actually was the design not too dissimilar to the one in the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid, who, which was actually used for the same uh, process. Uh, as the Templar crypt. So they were borrowing from a similar manual. And there's one that uh, um, has not been physically discovered yet, but I found all the evidence that it did exist uh, in the main preceptory in Tumara in Portugal, which is their stronghold. That was their main building, the center of the Templar world. And I've got the uh, newspaper cuttings from 1942 from the local library, which the local historian vows is um, completely fictitious until you present them with a copy of the actual article from the newspaper from the stonemasons who said that they were doing restoration work in 1942 to restore the uh, fragmented uh, uh, structure of the stone because it was falling apart. So because Portugal wasn't part of the Second World War, they had a, a, some time on their hands to fix the building. And they said, and I quote, that the uh, leading stonemason uh, wrote down uh, in his notebook all of the entrances uh, and the access tunnels that the Templars had used for for, uh, uh, for bringing in new knights uh, uh, because they were being bricked up because the building was becoming a little unsafe and then it was covered uh, around the base with concrete and it, all the vestiges of the entrances and the secret access points into this hidden crypt uh, would be forgotten forever. So I actually have that as, as a piece of record to show that only, uh, what, uh, 80 years ago, the access to the hidden crypt underneath that rotunda still existed. So I'm still hoping now that UNESCO has made it a protected site and because my book became a, a bestseller in Portugal, uh, ahead of Dan Brown, I will point out, uh, <laughs> that uh, I will have a bit of uh, leeway to find uh, my way into that crypt. And uh, if you do, you'll be one of the first to hear about it. Because it's, oh, it's, it's a place of pride. I've actually found a tunnel that leads to it. Uh, but apart from that, you can't go any further because we have a, a lot of very bad earthquakes in that part of the world, and it does uh, destroy the access tunnels. And that is also known in the town. The, the whole town is riddled with uh, Templar tunnels that go under the river to a church uh, dedicated to the Divine Virgin. But you can't access them because the uh, ceilings have collapsed because of the, uh, the ground uh, uh, constantly shaking. So we'll see yeah. where this goes you know so the, the the lore of dragons and the dragon lines and to lurk earth and energy and this like this like very common theme of like a knight going on this journey to save the woman from the castle like you had spoken about um uh, do, do you find that the dragon is oftentimes associated with uh telluric energy and that it when they say that it's surrounding a treasure that it is surrounding the the sacred places of ancient sites and um that 
that that conquering the dragon is like just maybe being a dowser or understanding how to work with these earthen energies and how to maybe uh make a contract with the dragon to absorb the energy and then to have that alchemical marriage within yourself oh it's a very good observation yes it's true uh i mean originally the uh, idea was that the symbol of the dragon or the serpent was uh, a sort of a badge of office uh, which basically told you that you are a person of a lineage that understands the laws of nature which by their very nature are electromagnetic so they flow just like serpents do so if you are if you were called a person of the serpent or a naga as they did in mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. uh in india or the anunaga uh as they call <laughs> yes in nice india. that's what they called them in india the anunaga uh in south america in central america they're always the people of the serpent in fact the location where i was born uh west of lisbon in sintra in portugal that also is where the offuser landed after their island sank in the middle of the atlantic after a global flood the, i'm sorry the who the offuser called the offuser and it literally means the people of the serpent. And there used to be a promontory which has now collapsed into the ocean near Sintra. Uh, and uh, you can still see parts of where this land just collapsed into the ocean. Uh, it's, a, it's a very bad fault line. And it was called the Promontory of the Serpent. And that's where they had their citadel. Uh, so it's a, lo- a, a big story. So the idea was that if you had this badge of office, you were one of the gods. Uh, a god is essentially a, a spirit in nature. So, you know, this, uh, this uh, glass has a god, the water has a god. If you understand what the, uh, what that water does, you become as a god. Uh, it's nothing to do with worship uh, and uh, putting your, uh, you know, bowing down in front of people. And that was about respect. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't come across any story in my research of ancient cultures that there was worship of gods going on. That comes much later, around 1800 uh, BC, mm-hmm. when we lost the, uh, the idea of what these stories were about. So, the, uh, so if you were associated with um, the serpent, uh, then you are part of that divine bloodline of this parallel civilization that walked alongside human gatherers a long time ago. So in Japan, for example, you have the Dragon Dynasty. So they all date their bloodline to a divine source from a sinking land somewhere in the middle of the Pacific and so forth. Now, in time, it also becomes the symbol of the, uh, the, like I said, the serpent energy, which is the electromagnetic currents that flow through nature, so that the two uh, combine in the symbol of the serpent and the dragon. Not only do you know the laws of nature, you are also part of that doctrine which once understood the laws of nature and how to bend it. Wow. That's powerful. Now, as far as the goddess uh, that was mentioned in the Charter of Ceres when that property was given to the Knights Templar, who was this goddess Ceres? Well, Sira is the uh, where the word Sira has come from. It's the uh, goddess of nature, the goddess of agriculture. She's a Greek goddess. Uh, eventually, I believe they named a uh, broken up planet, which is now the uh, asteroid belt in the solar system. That used to be the planet Ceres, apparently. So it was a goddess of grain, a goddess, a goddess right. of agriculture. Uh, and I believe the roots go back to ancient Armenia, like so many of the uh, place names in Portugal, uh, like Braga, where the Templars used to hang out. That's actually, uh, an, uh, 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 it actually means the place of the, um, oh, let me get this one right, Braga, it means the, the place of the, the, the sun, or the measurement of the sun. Uh, and there's a stone circle in the north of Scotland, uh, which is also called Brogar, which comes from exactly from the same word. So it's a place that venerated the sky and the seasons, but is also embodied by a, a female deity. Oh, so... Um, 
for oh my gosh i just looked up braga and the temple there <laughs> it's really beautiful <laughs> it's a beautiful place yeah that's wow. where the, the um uh the the father and the son uh, uh that created the country are buried uh they actually took me around the back to see the original uh, graves like oh what a wonderful moment you know wow you've gotten brought to all the coolest places man like gosh uh if only your eyes were video cameras and these like there's the documentary of freddie silva's life uh, uh well that's why i have lots of documentaries <laughs> yes brother um so i uh, want to uh talk to you more about um and make this like a two-parter question um your realizations that you've come about and that you've written about about the crucifixion itself the story and the allegory of the crucifixion and then how the symbol of the cross the red cross maybe being a bloody cross the ritual of the cross or the ritual of the crucifixion the crucifixion and its alchemical relations and how it associates to the Templars and what uh, types of symbologies that they were uh, interpreting with their main symbol that everybody knows has as. Oh God, that's like 15 questions in one actually. Sorry, um, my apologies. apologies. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna try and sort of condense that. Uh, yeah, I asked that question about the crucifixion of Christ uh, because I was writing the book on the lost art of resurrection. I kept coming across this word about raising the dead in different parts of the world and it had nothing to do with Christianity. And in fact, it preceded Christianity by thousands of years in certain cases. It turns out to be being a complete metaphor. Um, the uh, uh, the crucifixion or the mating of the of the individual with a wooden cross, which is actually an equal arm cross, goes uh, uh, can be seen in the early texts of the Maya, which go back five thousand years, uh, in the uh, crucifixion of Quetzalcoatl and Kukulkan, who are quite clearly shown. Uh, holding or being attached to a wooden equal length cross, which basically symbolizes the four elements of nature, earth, air, fire, and water, the material world. Why? Because he's, he's now, uh, he's Christed, he's spiritualized, the human being has left the body, he's discovered his, the true nature of his soul in the other world, come back to tell the story, he is now risen, he's awake, he's aware of the bigger picture, so he's married his spiritual self to the physical world, that's what the symbol is all about. So, which brings us, of course, to the, uh, the story of Jesus. Uh, and I, I was very fortunate to have communicated just before he died with Michael Bajant, who co-wrote the Holy Blood, Holy Grail, uh, one of my favorite researchers. Uh, and he really does a lot of in-depth research uh, because he'd also asked the same question. Uh, how can you make up such an important and, uh, you know, worldwide event that everybody knows about? Well, he said, it's interesting that when you read the uh, uh, the actual original stories around the crucifixion, there's a lot of anomalies, starting with the fact that the church makes Peter the first witness to Jesus's miraculous resurrection. He wasn't. The first witness was Mary Magdalene. And uh, Mary Magdalene, not her real name, by the way, Mary Magdal Eber, Mary was a tradition that she was practicing, which is the tradition of Isis, essentially. Uh, and Magdal Eber means the watchtower of the flock. So the symbol is that she's reached the top of the tower in her level of experience and teaching so that she can now watch over a flock and she can raise them up to her level of discipleship. So she was at the, at the head of the temple. As a woman who carries the divine bloodline, that also gave her access to poisons and antidotes. That was the highest level of initiation, was to be the administer of the poison and the antidote. So Mary Magdalene is the first witness to Jesus' miraculous resurrection, is because he had been drugged after being attached with ropes to a cross 
And then she came back a couple of days later and gave him the antidote. And it's uh, rumored that he had been given the poison of the liver fish, of the liver of the puffer fish, which induces a near-death uh, state in the individual. And it looks like you're actually dead. And there's a uh, herb that actually contravenes that uh, poison and it brings you back into a normal pallor. Now, Bajan took this a step further. He was looking at the, um, the story with Pontius Pilate that he said he had a problem with crucifying Jesus. He hadn't broken the Roman law. I cannot uh, crucify this guy because crucifixion is reserved for serious killers and people who really defy the laws. He hasn't broken any law. The Jews want him crucified because the rabbis are being done out of a job. He's going around saying, God isn't out there. The, the temple of God doesn't reside outside you. You are God. God is within you. So that's bad for business, and they wanted him out of the way. So the most influential person in this story is Joseph of Arimathea, a great businessman, a tin trader, uh, who Jesus actually joined on several trips to the south of England. Uh, we have a, a Jesus well that's about 2,000 years old in Cornwall to this very day. So anyway, Jesus, uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea reasoned with Pontius Pilate, You've got a bit of a problem on your hands. You've got to get rid of Jesus, or the Jews won't get rid of Jesus, but you can't apply Roman law to him because it doesn't apply. So I'll tell you what we'll do. I own a piece of property not far from the hill of Golgotha where you do your crucifixions. Why don't I take care of uh, Jesus and I'll make the problem go away? And Pontius uh, washes his hands of the problem. Uh, which is obviously in the Bible. Next thing you know, uh, according to Bajan's uh, research, which he actually dug up information from the uh, Vatican Library, uh, I don't know why they kept this information. It's almost like a bank robber that leaves a trail of banknotes back to his house. Uh, Bajan found out that uh, Joseph of Arimathea had arranged for a fake crucifixion. Uh, Jesus had already been initiated. Uh, so next thing to do was to attach him to the cross of matter. So they roped his arms to the cross and they put a, a little footstool on the cross to make sure that when he was on the cross, the weight of his body and the chest sticking out wouldn't have basically crushed his breathing and he was suffocated. That's what crucifixion does to you. So from a quarter of a mile away, the nearest uh, people who were uh, witnessed this event in the shimmering heat coming off uh, Jerusalem, you could have been watching Mickey Mouse being attached to a cross. They just saw something <laughs> go up on a cross yeah. and then they all went very happy. I was dead, finally crucified, and they all went home and had a nice drink. And then he gets taken down, and then Mary Magdalene gives him the antidote. So I'm really sort of paraphrasing his uh, meticulous research on this story, because he goes, according to the Indian people, they said, well, Jesus was never crucified. He uh, came to Kashmir, and he practiced here uh, until he died when he was about 80. And there's his grave right there to this very day. And there is a grave there with Yeshua ben Yosef marked on it, uh, Yeshua, the son of Joseph. Um, Mary Magdalene, uh, according to a Holy Blood, Holy Grail, uh, she went off to uh, south of France, Marseille, uh, or René Lebin, and then goes into France and goes AWOL, disappears. Uh, there were at least three children that we know that she bore, and I suspected that when part of the story ended up in Rosslyn, or at least in Scotland, because now the story's gone underground, there's not much information on it, uh, because obviously you're hiding from the church, you want to stay very quiet about this, I'd asked the same question when I was in Portugal about the importance of the name of Tamara and also the relationship of the name to one of the daughters, which is called Tamara. So, and it meant palm tree. And it was a similar resurrection in the Assyrian mysteries. 
And I thought that is a very blatant symbol to tell you that part of the bloodline may be in Portugal. Now, how do you go about proving this? This was not my charge to put this into the book. But I do know people within the Masonic order uh, in the States who, and especially the Eastern uh, star, who are the female uh, version of the Templars. And uh, I know the head of the, uh, the order and she says, well, I'm going to have a conclave in Belgium. Do you want me to ask anything that you, like stones that were left unturned? I said, yeah. Can you please just ask for me if uh, how close I am to identifying a bloodline after the fake crucifixion of Jesus uh, and did it end up in Portugal? And a week later, she comes back and she says, well, I had a very interesting response. And uh, I told him your story. And uh, the head of the Masonic Order uh, said, well, with a big smile on his face, just tell your friend his nose has gotten very deep in the honeypot. And uh, that's all we have to say. So I'll take it as a yes, that these people survived and they're still part of the lineage, which continues to this day, which is where Dan Brown picks up the fictionalizing of the Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And that's why it became so popular and it touched the nerves. So I suspect that the bloodline is still in Portugal and in Scotland. And uh, they're apparently being protected for their own sake, because if people find out, it will undermine the church uh, finally, which it should do, because it's a false church. Which is funny enough that Portugal and Scotland are both stronghold homes of the ancient Celtic people Exactly, well. exactly. And protectors of a divine bloodline as well. Yeah. Yes. And which were a matriarchal society. And that's so, you know, on the show, what we do is we, we take each uh, topic and we try to stretch it out for a month or two um, and try to go as deep as we can on those. And, and we did just cover ancient... Uh, Ireland, ancient Scotland, as much as we could with great authors. And, um, you know, obviously yourself, you were tied to that. Um, and so that's why, you know, talking to you now is like a great segue because you not only talk about the, these ancient areas, but you bring that, um, those areas of research into the Templars. And so it's, I, I want to know your, your opinion on like what you know and found in your research on the Tuatha de Danan and the ancient Celtic tribes and maybe that matriarchal society that uh, that was existed before the church came over and finally got their got their way over the land. Got their there. Way. Yeah, and they uh, <laughs> it was a nefarious plot. Um, when, when I was I was researching the uh, the Scotland book, and I thought it would be a local story. And again, it's not local. It begins somewhere <laughs> else. It begins on the other side of the world. You always start Armenian here and end places. up way over there. <laughs> exactly. I had to learn uh, Armenian language just to understand the names of the places in Scotland, which then tells you exactly what the stone circles mean. Uh, who knew? And one of the things that uh, suddenly I, I got uh, researching was how did this connect to Ireland? Because back then there was no Scotland and Ireland. That kingdom pretty much was uh, connected to itself. And um, there was a group of people called the uh, people of Anu, who once existed in the Armenian highlands before the Younger Dryas. Uh, I think I finally found their location, but I'm keeping it kind of quiet for now uh, because I need to go there and actually research it. Uh, and eventually uh, they moved because of climate uh, change. Uh, even back in 6000 BC, they had climate change. Uh, they eventually moved from the Armenian highlands all the way down into uh, Sumeria, where they were called the Anunnaki. So that's in about... 5000 BC, uh, give or take uh, 500 years. 
At the same time that they were going south, they're also going north around the Caucasus uh, range into what is today Georgia and Ukraine and uh, Crimea, all the way around Romania and Bulgaria, essentially the Black Sea kingdoms and all the way through Siberia. And by, by this time, they're called the Scythian uh, kingdom. And uh, the people who basically were the tradition of the bloodline of the Anunnaki were called the Tuad Dedanu. Uh, so the Anunnaki has already been shorted to Anu. Anu is essentially a god of the sky, kind of like uh, Ra for the Egyptians. And in fact, the two are actually related. So the two other Danu were maintaining this connection of, uh, 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 of bloodline throughout the Scythian kingdom. And they were intermarrying into the Greek culture, the Egyptian culture. Uh, Nefertiti was one of their kind, by the way, uh, when she marries Akhenaten. And there's a paper trail to link those things. Uh, in fact, her name in uh, Armenian means she who is the backbone of the ruler. Uh, it's incredible. So it's not, Nefertiti is not a name, it's a title. So we fast forward, by about 5000 BC, there was a huge climate change also in Europe, which forced all of these people to move westwards, and it brings agriculture finally to Western Europe and the tradition of building sacred sites, and specifically big mounds with little tunnels made with stones where people used to congregate and they used to hold their particular sermons or they used to uh, meet for a tribal uh, tradition and also to explain uh, mysticism and also enact rules. So the mounds, essentially, there's no one buried there. There are places of congregation. Uh, and eventually they move across the uh, to the west of France to Karnak, which is an Armenian name, and uh, Brittany, uh, which used to be called Armorica, which is also an Armenian name. And from there, the tradition moves over to Wales. Uh, so uh, Kumri, which is the original name of Wales, is also a, a region in Armenia today, by the way. So they were obviously very homesick. They kept taking their names with them. And from there, they went into Ireland. And that's where you get the sudden appearance. Uh, it's hard to say when, um, judging from the, the remaining traditions, I want to guess about 4,500 BC, the Tuwa, the Danan suddenly show up on the coast of Ireland, up in Donegal and in Sligo. So essentially the name goes from uh, Anu, Anunnaki, to Tuwa the Danu, to Tuwa the Danan. It's the way that language moves through region and time. Uh, it suddenly changes because you can't pronounce it the way you used to. So they became the um, visionaries and the healers and the prophesizers of ancient traditions in Ireland, and they formed the bloodline. And of course, they were very tall for, uh, for uh, humans. Uh, usually uh, sometimes as much as eight and a half feet tall, by the way. And the giant's graves are still all over Britain to prove the fact. Mm. They were lighter skinned than your ordinary people uh, and uh, blonde with blue eyes or red haired and green eyes, which is where the, the Irish get that tradition from. Essentially, it's the foundation of Caucasian uh, features, uh, which I know is very politically charged today, but uh, yeah. back then, that was not the case. You know, this is not a woke thing. It's not the fact that they were better. They were just different. There was mm -hmm. nothing about hierarchy or worship back then. Uh, people have got this whole concept uh, completely upside down, pretty much thanks to the to the, uh, the Nazis and the far right. But let's leave that aside for a second. Absolutely. Please so do. back then, <laughs> yeah, back then we have a different landscape of, of, of reverence and mutual respect. So the two other, the, the Danan show up in Ireland and they met exactly the same uh, red-haired giants that they had originally battled in the uh, Middle East as the Anunnaki. Uh, these are the problem child uh, children with the offspring of the small group of watchers 
that mated with human women but were told not to do so, and they created this bastard offspring that led to the flooding of the earth. But that's another story. It's a very big story. Uh, so eventually, they, uh, they uh, ruled in Ireland, they created the bloodline, and they essentially fo uh, founded the uh, bloodline of Scotland as well, uh, which was back, uh, back at the day, was also intermarried with the Egyptian dynasty. Uh, so it became a kind of an underground movement, but it was well loved by everybody in Ireland because when the church shows up with the story of this savior who basically looks like an Italian model, but he was a Jew called Yeshua ben Yosef, and they tried to sell the story to the Irish people. They said, oh, we've got a similar story of uh, a, a guy who basically starts his uh, peregrination on the spring equinox, and nine months later, he gets up from the dead on the winter solstice. Oh, you guys, you got it backwards. <laughs> you got the resurrection in Easter backwards. Uh, so the story of Jesus actually uh, fell into place in Ireland very quickly because they said, we've had that story for thousands of years. We call him Gesu, <laughs> uh, a similar tradition. So um, the church obviously couldn't have this because they thought they'd eradicated the bloodline in Europe when they uh, made the downfall of the Merovingian Empire. They installed the Carolingians in their place, and it altered the whole course of political history in Europe ever since. So they get to Ireland. People are still honoring the two other dynamics. said, well, we need to make these people go away because we're not going to be able to rule these people with this bogus religion. So they invented, get this, they invented the concept of fairies, Little miniature people that suck your blood and uh, they come from hell. So if you're afflicted by fairy folk, <laughs> you are being surrounded by the devil. You have to go to church to be anointed and be Christianized. Mm. And it's about a little bullshit. Uh, <laughs> but here's the funny thing. By doing this, and I suspect that a lot of the Irish monks were under duress to write this because they must have suggested the word fairy uh, because it means it's a corruption of the word uh, which means fair folk. Uh, mm -hmm. Because these people, the Tuatadan, were fair-skinned. So in a way, the fairies were actually a symbol of the fair-skinned people of the divine bloodline. So they kind of gave the game away. Um, so uh, there's a bit of a political sort of movement here to try and sort of preserve the old tradition while, you know, giving lip service to the church at the same time. Because even though all the mounds were destroyed, the Irish people still, to this very day, most of them that I speak to in the countryside still believe in the fair folk still, whose memory still lives in the mound. And, of course, they're totally correct. Because just because you're physically dead doesn't mean you can't be useful and you're not alive. You are still alive. Your soul is still in the mounds and the spirit of place. So it's still going on to this very day. Wonderful. And, and, that, and yeah, like, do you think that there's this ability to to take um, maybe part of the purpose that we are all here sharing this place and space together is to collect information, have downloads, and then to kind of like put it into the mounds, put it into the earth, the, yeah. the magnetic energies, and you can go to these places and paying homage allows that to be honored and keep that tradition going. Exactly. It's a self-help thing. I mean, I actually call these places uh, self-help centers. Uh, if you forget that you can do this by yourself, you are the temple. You can go within and go, okay, I get it. If you've lost that ability or you doubt that ability, go to a sacred site and just sit there. Expect nothing in return. Uh, if you expect something to happen, it won't happen. Yeah. If you expect nothing and you go there and say, I have a, a, a question and just just sit there quietly, have a sandwich, 
sit there watching butterflies or bees and uh, play a flute, meditate. <laughs> uh, it'll come to you. The information will come to you. And that's how, it, uh, that's how humanity's spiritual development has always worked. Uh, there's this interaction between the invisible uh, world and us as well. And uh, the thing that I always keep hearing is, um, and I work with a lot of channelers on this, they're saying, well, you know, we are very privileged to be asked for help from people who are incarnated because we've done that. We know how difficult it is. Because you forget why you appear on earth. You suddenly appear and it's like you're disconnected from your source and you spend the rest of your life, you know, watching, you know, Gaia television or reading books by authors or going to lectures to discover your inner spirituality. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Uh, And um, so we know how difficult it is to reconnect uh, with who you are as a soul. So if you ask us for help, we will give you the help. But you have to do the work, you see. We'll give you images, dreams, words, visions, but you have to actually do all the work. Otherwise, it defeats the purpose. But just because we're dead doesn't mean we can't be useful. We're just in the room next door. That's all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know what you're doing. We can see you. We can sense you. Uh, but we're a different uh, radio station. So if you dial into our radio station and say, I need some assistance, we'll give you the information. And that's the way it's always been. It's always been that very soft touch. Do you, um, do you take naps at sacred sites? Oh, God, yeah. I encourage sleep learning. Uh, but you might miss something. That's the only thing. You want to go into the state where you're not quite awake and you're not quite sleeping. Uh, that's the way I like to do things. Uh, usually I like to do photography. I, I find that looking for the camera lens helps me to see things I usually don't see with a naked eye. And it's a great place. It's a way for me to focus. Uh, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> but it is. I, I find more things sometimes in a way that the light hits a certain stone or something that I hadn't really noticed before. And, uh, and it allows me to sort of be in a state of artistic reverence uh, while also trying to disengage my brain. Uh, it, it really does. And some people I know go there and play guitar. I have a few musician, famous musician friends in England uh, who sold lots of albums who I meet them at the sacred sites and we have lovely conversations about the connection between music at sacred sites and the connection yes. to uh, information that you usually get. So, yeah, no, the, uh, whatever tool works for you, uh, there's no specific rhyme or reason. Some people will sit there and uh, meditate or they'll take drugs. And I can only say that taking drugs actually gets in the way. You know, you want to go there with a nice, clear sort mm-hmm. of uh, uh, spirit. And don't even take any drink with you. Uh, leave that till later, uh, because once you start, start seeing things happen, then you start drinking heavily. Yeah, you know, save that for the the, the aftermath, right? The come, come down, down yeah, and back down. <laughs> you won't believe what I saw today. Another pint. <laughs> Alchemy. Uh, so a lot of research I've done has, has led to Mary Magdalene being one of the OG original alchemists, um, holding alchemical secrets. Is that is that? Um, and it, you know, you said she, she administered uh, poisons and antidotes, yeah. which are something at least that we can understand as an uh, an alchemical solution. Is this something that you found in your research as well? Oh, pretty much. Uh, and in fact, she, uh, uh, she wasn't called a woman in red or in the red dress for, for no reason. Mm-hmm. Although it's completely misappropriated. It comes from a translation era where, um, she was called a hierodul, uh, which had no direct translation into Latin at the time. The closest that they came up with was harlot. 
except the harlot back in that uh, day meant a man, a promiscuous man in court. It then gets changed by the church into a promiscuous woman and from there into whore and prostitute. So mm -hmm. complete perversion uh, of language, just like we were talking earlier with Jehuti finding, hey, I come up with words and Patar saying, be careful with words because they can be misused. It's a wonderful connection. I just, I just worked that out. Uh, but if you trace the story of the red robe that she wore uh, as part of ritual tradition, you find its earliest occupation in Sumeria in about 4000 BC. Uh, the goddess Inanna and all her particular mm -hmm. crew, exactly. they also wore the red or crimson robe, uh, which is called Ritu. And the ritu means, it's where we get the word ritual from. So they are women of the ritual, and the people who did the ritual were at the highest level of office. Uh, and ritu literally translates from Old Sumerian as truth. So if you've already done the out-of-body work and you come back with information, you know truth, real truth, not what stuff that we have here or stuff that I'm trying to tell you. That's an approximation of truth. Mm -hmm. When you've left the body, you come back with the real information. That's real truth. That's what's actually happening in real time in the universe, not through our sense of judgment or perspective, uh, which kind of clouds the original meaning of things. So when you have the, uh, when you wear the crimson robe of, uh, of truth, uh, you have won that right to speak the truth. So it places her again at the very high level of uh, initiation within the temple culture. I have a question about the uh, nice Templar. Did they ever go to Nova Scotia? As it was said that they may have gone to Nova Scotia to go in hiding, maybe stash some treasures there. No, not Oak Island. <laughs> Don't go there. Yeah, in a recent uh, podcast. Oh, God. But, um, what do you uh, think about that? I, I, I just want to sit here and, and show my face to the world when we mention Oak Island, the pain that comes across my face. Um, <laughs> yes and no. There's no trail because they were hiding. Uh, and now we're talking at a time when they've just finished being persecuted. They've escaped France. They've moved to Portugal. They also moved to Scotland, bypassing England, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and then it all goes completely silent. Uh, they could. They were trying to get this utopia going. Uh, they were struggling at this point in the 14th century. Next place where you can find the utopia is, oh, there's a big land on the other side of the Atlantic. Let's go there. So they originally ended up in Canada. Uh, and you, you know this because at the entrance to the St. Lawrence Seaway is the first piece of land called Magdalene Island. Mm. I wonder what's there, folks. If anybody wants to go and, and play, let me know. Uh, yeah, and then they end up in Montreal, the sacred mount. Okay. Ah. There's a whole story which I'm not too familiar with. I know a woman who wrote a great book on the Templars in Montreal, and I haven't quite uh, got around to reading it yet, but it's thick. Uh, and she starts off talking about John the Baptist. So I know this woman knows what she's talking about. What is this? What is this woman's name? If you don't mind, I wish I could remember, uh, you know, I can remember really difficult things, but people's <laughs> names start leaving my head. I'm allowed. I'm, I'm, I'm over 60 now. Um, but it's to do with the Templars in Montreal. You can probably check it on a uh, online store, which I, whose name I won't mention. Francine uh, Bernier. Because I, I, I hate them. Uh, Jeff Bezos with a passion. Yeah, uh, but too. anyway, uh, that's my that's my hatred out of the way. 
Uh, yeah, they would uh, actually go around the coast. And I was research when I was uh, finishing off my research on my Templar book. I, I was in Harvard, and I did come across a uh, map that precedes Columbus by forty years, and it shows Labrador as Labrador, which is Portuguese for land labor or a laborer of the land. Uh, and it shows the Portuguese uh, royal flag with the Templar flag firmly planted in Labrador long time before Columbus even knew what the hell the new world was all about. Because let's face it, it was the old world. So the Portuguese had already been in, the, uh, in that part of the world, along with the Vikings, before anybody else. And they kept very quiet about this. They didn't want to give the game away to the point where uh, Henry the Navigator, uh, the famous uh, politician in, in Portugal, who was the head of the uh, Templar Order and the Order of Sion, by the way, uh, he forbade any of the ship's captains uh, working with the Scottish uh, captains to forbid any knowledge to anyone of where they were going in a new world. And the, 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 if you've uh, blabbed in the pub to, uh, to you, where you were about to go sailing to, you'd be murdered. They were very serious about killing you if you told people where they were going because they were trying to set up a new branch of the Templar Brotherhood in the new world. So Montreal was part of that story. Um, Washington eventually became part of that story. So you followed the trajectory. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think Nova Scotia uh, would have been an important place because if you take the trajectory uh and this is i don't know how they work this out if you take the main place where the templars began the story uh and the in solomon stables in jerusalem and you connect a line to rosslyn or just outside rosslyn by the mm -hmm. way because the original preceptory was just a three miles to the south and you find the other location uh in uh in portugal which is tomara it creates a perfect isosceles triangle. I mean, it is perfect. How the hell did it do this? I don't know. And I couldn't help bisecting that to find out what happens in the middle. And it goes right through Sion, the hill of Sion, where the Order of Sion uh, was originally placed in Switzerland. And if you follow that line across the globe, it eventually goes right into St. John's in um, Newfoundland. So not too far from Nova Scotia. Uh, and um, they uh, also, uh, the line continues going through Margaret Hill, who was the sister of Mary Magdalene. And it also goes through the town of Magdalene as well. And it eventually ends up in uh, not far from where George Washington was born in Delaware Bay. So there's a trajectory here of geometry that connects the uh, the movement of the Templars in the New World. Uh, were they absolutely on Oak Island? I don't think they were. Uh, all the symbols that I've seen so far from that very stupid show uh, is the fact that the Rosicrucians <laughs> might have been there, which is a later <laughs> order. Uh, and they found little bits of... Um, of ceramic, which is from the era uh, of the Rosicrucians. The Templars are long gone by then. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't hold much hope out for the Oak Island thing. And they have destroyed all the evidence anyway. They've used dynamite and they've blown holes everywhere. Um, yeah. The one thing that gave the story away, and someone was trying to get me on the show, which I didn't want to be associated with because it's all make-believe. Um, and I have, a, I have a reputation to keep. And I said, you know, if, if I was on the show, I would look at the uh, the these enormous quartz boulders on Oak Island, which form from the air, the constellation of the swan, which was a symbol of the Gnostic tradition around the time of the Rosicrucian. So we're now in late medieval era. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you follow the neck of those lines, there's a bay behind the, uh, the well, apparently, uh, or that shaft that they built. And I bet you that's where the real entrance actually is. The, the, uh, the main well entrance, uh, that's just to get your attention for people looking for treasure. 
these people always worked with subterfuge. They would have placed something on the land to tell you that the entrance is actually requires a bit more uh, research. And about six episodes later, as though my office is bugged, someone appears on the show <laughs> saying, hey, look at these boulders. They look like the constellation of the swan. They're pointing to this bay. So they drained the bay at low tide. And they found the actual entrance of the shaft that goes towards the well. Uh, to which point I said, well, there's, you're not going to be able to find what's down there because what you miss out, and, and you only know this if you live around uh, uh, the, this part of the world, uh, and I live in Portland, Maine, so I'm part of the same tidal uh, progression. The uh, sea level has surged since the time of the Templars by over 12 feet. Okay, it's not a, the trap wasn't designed to inundate. The trap has been inundated because of the rising sea level since the time it was built. So they'll never find anything. Uh, but what I do have, uh, there's an island here uh, in uh, Casco Bay. We have 400 islands, more beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a stone there with a un, uh, totally identifiable Templar cross, and you only see it at low tide now. Uh, and it was found there by a um, uh, 33rd degree Freemason with whom I'm friends with. Uh, he kind of found it by accident. And he was wondering why he was, he was drawn to that particular island. So, yes, there is a kind of a small, very subtle trail going along the North American coastline all the way to Delaware Bay. So do you think that Mary Magdalene was initiated with that uh, with that ritual of being entombed in the sarcophagi for three days? And I if she was, what about his uh, disciples? Yeah, I would have found it anomalous if she hadn't done it, uh, because the process was open to women and men. Uh, we don't get to hear much about the women because all the, the paper trail has mostly vanished. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was also open to ordinary people. I mean, there's one in Egypt that did it, and uh, he was basically a servant in the household of the Pharaoh Teti. And it, there's actually a, a spirit door that mimics his journey into the chamber of restricted access, as he calls it. And then at the end, he says, I found the way. Well, boom, there's the teaching right there. Um, no, I, I suspect that she also would have gone for exactly the same process. Uh, the trick is you weren't usually allowed to tell about it uh, because the idea was that you... Uh, your experience is uh, an individual experience because you are an individual soul. Uh, for me to sit at the pub on Sunday and say, hey, guess what I've been for the last three days, and I just come back to tell the story, I'm going to basically cloud your experience. You're going to expect to uh, experience what I experienced. Well, you're not going to have that experience because your soul, uh, Prince, is different to mine. I'm searching for something totally different. It would have prejudiced your experience. Uh, and it was so important to maintain the integrity of where you've done and what you've been, that in Greece, it was an offense punishable by law. You would go to jail if you blurted out to the public, hey, I just got on an out-of-body journey because they stuck me in a box inside a cave in uh, Mount Olympus. Uh, boom, you got your ass in jail. But it was all to protect the integrity of the uh, the journey and the information that you got. Uh, nothing nefarious. So anybody that had risen to the highest level of uh, discipleship uh, would have gone through that experience. And uh, it would have been anomalous if uh, uh, Mary or even some of the disciples, and if you read the Gospel uh, of uh, Thomas, uh, or people like that, uh, all the Gospels that were banned, uh, you get the sense that they also had uh, gone through it, but you have to read between the lines. You've got to read the fragments of what's available today in the, in the Gnostic Gospels and mm-hmm. see that some of them quite clearly have gone through this experience. And it's all in the symbology and the metaphor that they're employing throughout their work. So they were likely spirit warriors trying to protect this secret knowledge 
Now, um, can you mention anything about the symbol of the two knights on the horse and what that represents? Yeah, it's a bit cumbersome going into battle and having all that extra weight on your horse to fight these Saracens. Uh, it didn't make any sense. It also didn't make any sense that the official version was that they were so poor that they had to share a horse. Oh, do me a favor. These people were not poor. They were actually well off and uh, they had lots of estates back in Europe. Uh, they were basically being humble. That's what they were. The two uh, people on the horse symbolizes the duality of the soul, the light and the dark. And you're riding the horse. The horse back then was a symbol of knowledge. It was the mirror image of the Sphinx in Egypt uh, and also the lion uh, in the other parts of the world. So when you're riding the horse, uh, and, and actually comes out in Portuguese language, uh, horse is cavalo. Okay, and the verb cavara means to dig below the surface. Uh, the only way you're going to find out uh, uh, about how you're going to harmonize your dual personality of the light and the dark is to dig below the surface because that's where the, the wisdom is. You will drink the wisdom and you become as one. So you're literally riding the horse, which represents the knowledge, and the two contexts of the personality are going in one direction. And eventually, the point is that you become one individual. I love that. Thank you. There's a lot of alchemical symbolism involved in all this. I love that. Yeah, the changing of face metal into gold. You become an enlightened being because gold has a, a luster about it. So when you've done your work, there's a luster about you. You know, like like someone who's well read. There's a certain demeanor about them. Uh, when you look at the images of the uh, apostles, they have a halo around them. Mm -hmm. Well, that's your that's uh, they were shining ones. Uh, that was the uh, name that was the nickname that was given to the Anunnaki and the people who'd gone through this process as well. So yeah, once you understand the symbol and what uh, it all comes down to, it makes so much more sense. Um, Sion sounds a lot like Zion. Yeah, it, uh, they're related. Uh, it's to do with the cornerstone uh, in the Hebrew uh, mythology. Um, it's the cornerstone of the arch that holds up the uh, the arch. It's called actually in, in English. It's called the boss. Central pillar. You ever wonder why you call someone? Hey, boss! I wanted to raise. Uh, the boss is what maintains the arch from falling down on your head, uh, mm -hmm. rightly or wrongly. So. Uh, the Zion or the Sion is that cornerstone or that uh, stone that holds the arch, which holds up the sky from falling on your head. Um, it's also uh, the the etymology goes back even further into deep history. I'm trying to remember it. Uh, uh, let's see. I'm, I'm going to my mind palace right now. Um, <laughs> it also signifies a pile of stones, and it also represents the uh, the center of the universe. And it's also the point of contact at the top of a mountain when you see a pile of stones uh, that represents a point of contact between the earth and the sky. So essentially, it's, it's identifying a uh, unifying source from which every everything else falls into place. Do you, do you find that to be uh, symbolic of in Masonic art? The you know you have the the two pillars commonly, but uh, more rare you'll have a central pillar which usually has like Jacob's ladder or snake wrapping around it do you think that um the central pillar is the same as that that cornerstone 
symbolism? Kind of. It's related. I mean, there's about 16 symbols you just described there. Uh, <laughs> even I don't know all of them. I'm not a Mason, uh, but I'm beginning to understand how they came about uh, because, of course, they're based on the Templar work and they're based mm. on Middle Eastern uh, information. Yes. Uh, if you go into Egypt and, uh, and, and to Mesopotamia, you'll get a lot of the same symbolism so we can extract that and uh, overlay it. The two pillars, essentially, uh, when it comes down to it, in, in Masonry, represent the, uh, the uh, priestly uh, Messiah and the kingly Messiah, the two pillars that hold up the entire mysteries teachings. Yes. Um, John the Baptist was the priestly Messiah. Uh, he was basically the most important part of the uh, the duo. Uh, he maintained the tradition of initiation. He was the one that maintained also the uh, the written tradition and the oral tradition from which these things go back to. Uh, Mary Magdalene was also the, the, one of the pillars, by the way, which is kind of strange because she uh, her position was the, as a as the central pillar of the traditions was the fact that she also represented the bloodline, which is much more important than anything else. Uh, without the bloodline, you've got nothing. Uh, her red dress, the ability maybe. of these people was in the blood itself. That's why they didn't want to intermarry with ordinary uh, peons. They had to maintain it within the family because that's what gave them their particular ability, and especially as healers. Uh, but um, uh, from what, I, uh, what I've read about this, there's, a, 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 there's two stories going on here. The other pillar, the kingly Messiah, uh, was also attributed to Jesus. Uh, he was almost like the PR. He was kind of the, the forefront that signified where this bloodline comes from. But paradoxically, it was the woman that's uh, with Jesus, who's, uh, his wife, Mary Magdalene, who has the real power. But again, there's a bit of a symbol there and a bit of a metaphor because the real power is not in what you see, is what you don't see. Uh, it's the it's the it's the invisible universe. That's where the real power really is. Yes. The visible world is a kind of an apparition. It's uh, it leads you to get into ego uh, and also into looking at big things and taking pictures of them. It's a bit like going to Egypt and I watch people in my group on the first day wanting to take pictures of a big pyramid and I'll say, but you know what? The little pyramid of the three is actually the most important. And the jaws drop. I said, yeah. And that's the first rule: don't get fooled by size and scale. Because the tradition of the mysteries requires you to look not at what you're looking at, but looking over what doesn't get your attention. And the invisible does not get your attention. So Jesus is the kingly Messiah. Everybody's looking at him. And while they're looking at him, they're not looking at Mary Magdalene, who's the real uh, center of attention. Uh, which was why you have the open book, the closed book, exactly. right? the XO and the SO. That's very interesting. And maybe also why tunnels and crypts and these underground um, things. It, actually, it's hermetic. It's beautifully hermetic. It's the as above, so below. And exactly. And uh, it's the little things and the invisible things which are much more potent. Um, yeah, it's, what, um, what yeah we're all attracted to, uh, you know, a Lamborghini and the Ferraris. And, yeah, actually, I drive a Mini Cooper. I love it. <laughs> and on a good day, I could just be three seconds behind a Lamborghini, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there a, eventually. <laughs> I have a truck and a moped, and I ge I generally drive the moped because it's so much funner, smaller, and uh, <clears throat> yeah. but okay, uh, we're wrapping up on two hours here, and we respect your time immensely. And I mean, everybody listening, if you haven't gotten just an entire year's worth of just digging into with notes that you guys have to look up, um, maybe we can we can add to it a little bit with just. Oh, we're talking about little things, unseen things. And um, when you start to dig into the esoteric mysteries, you know, we look at giants. But what about the little people? Because I know the, the Habsburgs, speaking of bloodlines and 
keeping it in. And they thought the Habsburgian bloodline, I believe they thought they went all the way back to Osiris, I've read before, which is really interesting. And they held um, capital of uh, the mines. The Habsburgs were very um, <clears throat> keen on um, the mining culture and then minting from the mines. Anyways, Rudolph II, very interesting character in history, um, trying to be a part of the Hermetic Revival. Um, Giordano Bruno was a part of his magic circle oh, as yes. well. He was very important. Um, but the little people, what have you found about, not giants, but the little people of history? They were doing all the hard work. Um, in France, they have the tradition up in Brittany, where, in, in fact, the people in Brittany are actually unusually short, and even in Cornwall. And um, the traditions, which I also find in uh, around Lake Titicaca you know, with the Aymara, and they said that you know originally we came here with the gods to uh, build these big megalithic sites, and that we were involved in uh, moving a lot of the stones and putting things into place. And I thought, well, that would have been the work of big people, wouldn't it? I said, actually, mm -hmm. if, uh, size does not matter, and it reminds you of the joke with uh, uh, Yoda and uh, Luke Skywalker. You know, judge me by my size, do you? Hmm? <laughs> and he said, oh no, no, master, no, of course not. Uh, and he said, that'd be a really powerful guy. Well, these people again had complete knowledge of the law of nature and how to bend them and it turns out from a lot of the folklore that i discovered around the world that the little people seem to be also very physically involved in creating megaliths uh, so again uh, don't judge people by their size or the lack of it because they tend to be quite important and also the fact that um they also draw, uh, draw little attention uh you know they draw frivolous attention so people tend to focus on the tall people but they forget about the little people just like jesus and mary magdalene everybody looks at jesus they forget about mary magdalene mm -hmm. uh same concept uh but uh, the one thing that i also found out is, is that if you were um, if you were uh, dwarf-like you also had a great esteem within the Celtic tribes and in England, especially around Avebury, it was the dwarf people that had the better connection to the other world because they were much more connected to the ground, uh, you see. So they figured once they had, for example, and this is now the time when around 2000 BC, when the weather's going a bit ballistic, they had huge problems around the earth with uh, either, either solar flares or meteorite strikes. We were having, I think we had... So far, we've, we've uh, come across 13 near end of world scenarios since the Great Flood. We tend to forget that things are very volatile in the solar system. Yes. So people are losing the plot in uh, the south of Britain, uh, where the story comes from. And the shamans were having a hard time t trying to communicate with the other world to find out what's the big picture. What are we in for? Because we can prepare. Uh, so what happened was that they would uh, 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 ask the uh, the dwarf people to sit in on all of these conversations, and the dwarf people said, uh, "We volunteer to die to go into the other world to connect with the shamans, and we will send you back the information uh, through the mounds." Uh, and we'll connect shamanically through the mounds to tell you what's going on in the solar system and the planet, so you can survive. <laughs> So it was an honor and a privilege to be killed ritually. And uh, if you go to Avery today, you'll still see a, a mark at the, at the two entrance stones, uh, which actually not the big ones that you see there. Are, if you go, if you go just a little bit further into the actual mound of Avery, there are two concrete pillars. I'm sorry to say, 
uh, they were broken up by the Puritans, who were uh, mm. very fun-loving. There are two uh, <laughs> entrance stones, which are about yay high, made of concrete. That's the original uh, portal. So you go like a snake, you bend around. You don't go in a straight line. You bend around, and you go through the doorway, and there's an actual uh, dwarf person buried there at the entrance. So when you step over the bones of the, yeah, the dwarf, if you're aware of what's going on, you psychically pick up the energy of what's in the bones and in the spirit form of the dwarf that's buried there, and you pick up the information. That's how they did it. It was the transfer of information when you were having a hard time to connect. Uh, so it was a real privilege to be a short person back then. You, you were very highly gar- uh, regarded within the tribe, as were women. With beards, you know, some women just have uh, a lot of testosterone and they, they have a small beard. Uh, oh, yeah, you'll see these, uh, especially around Ukraine uh, and, and, and Bulgaria. Uh, a lot of wise women, psychics, to have a, a, a small sort of hair around here. Ah, oh, Madame Blavatsky. Yeah, they also had the highest uh, level of uh, respect within the tribe because hair, the, it's like Native Americans, your memory is in the hair. Uh, mm. your spirit form is in the head. That's why scalping a Native American was one of the worst things you could do to these people. And that's why it was done. And also, conversely, when the Apache used to scalp other tribes, it was to take their spirit away. So, wow. yeah, the hair was very important because also the beard was a sign that you were one of the gods. So if you go to South America and you look at the Aymara, the Aymara men do not have beards. They can't genetically grow a beard because uh, they are completely different. They are normal human beings, whereas the gods with the people who originally had the beards compared to uh, local tribes. Yeah, strange stories. These things are all upside down. Absolutely. Mary Magdalene was said to be very hairy. Uh, oh, really? They've had uh, hair all Harry over Mary. her body. And Harry wow. Mary. Yeah. And uh, beard as well. Wow. It just shows you. It's all cultural. <laughs> yeah. Man. There's a tribe of men. I think it's in Senegal or Mali that apparently the men have to dress up like women and wear the most incredible makeup so that the women can choose a husband. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's <laughs> incredible. We're all so different. This is why I like, uh, I get so uh, annoyed with people on social media, you know, m- making distinctions between people. And it's like, well, they're different from us. We have to hate them. No, the whole fun of living is that we're all different. Yes. It's fun, yes. you know. If I want to get a wife in Mali, I have to dress like like a woman, you know. And parts of the uh, you know, in in Republican states, you'd be stoned to death if you dress up like a woman. Uh, and it just shows you the futility of the lack of understanding uh, in the world. And that's what I like about the, seeing people who are different to me. It, it makes me realize how wonderful uh, we are as a cornucopia of human beings. And you have stories to tell uh, to tell when you come home, you know. Like I go to uh, Nubia in south of uh, Egypt. One of my tours. I love being down there. The men are actually taller than me, and I'm six foot five. And they're very elegant uh, men. The women are beautiful. And I think, wow, I never would have thought that that was uh, possible in this part of the world. But there they are, and they have the most beautiful form of music, which sounds like an early form of jazz as well. Really? Uh, you won't know until you go there, and uh, you bring back these stories, and you think. Thank God that these people don't uh, don't dress in baseball caps and sit there at the airport going, hey, yo, what's up? Uh, I can get that in LA if I want to, you know? So, yeah, thank God for diversity. Did you say Nubian uh, yeah. jazz or Nubian music? Because I'm it's, very it's, interested. It sounds very much like an early form of jazz. They uh, play a lot of sort of uh, woodwind oboes and uh, uh, unusual time signatures, and I'm, I get completely sucked into Nubian music. And then I thought... 
you know, it's almost like listening to jazz. It really is. And I wonder where yeah. that's the inspiration of how I ended up in America. Oh, do you know what? I love you, Freddie. You're amazing. Thank you so much. I love so you much. more than your own parents, man. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't let my mother hear this. She is listening, by the way. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything you want to plug? I know you do lots of tours. You got books, you got documentaries. You're, you know, you're a busy, busy man. Um, let people know where they can find you. This dog is very happy to hear about you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, the dog bought my book. Uh, yeah, just go to my website. I've got uh, about eight or nine books there. Um, uh, I've got, there's 15 documentaries as well, and there's lots of articles. So, yeah, it'll keep you busy for quite a bit. Uh, InvisibleTemple.com is where to go. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if not, well, come on tour. And uh, you have to be lucky. There's... Uh, uh, my Egypt tour has 350 people on a waiting list. So, but then again, you might just be number one. You just never know. Oh. People come back for more. They are, they can't get enough. So we're doing something right. Uh, and a lot of people's lives have been changed, uh, by the way I designed the tours to have them have their own personal experience, not just me talking. It's about them having the direct experience of sacred space. And I see people changing for the better. And that's the whole point is to get you out of your comfort zone in the modern world, put away the cell phone, stop looking at email and what's going on on the internet. Just be alone for 10 days in a different uh, environment thousands of years ago. And you realize that you're surrounded by a lot of noise today and you can, and you can change the signal to noise ratio by using your conscious intent. So if you can do that, I've done my job. That's beautiful. Do you do any tours down South in South America at all? I used to do Peru and Bolivia and uh, run one during COVID and it was very difficult. They had a lot of restrictions, uh, like double masks and a face shield in a place where you can't breathe anyway at high altitude. And I, it, was, it was hard work and I figured I'll go back there when things have, uh, when the bureaucracy, uh, the crazy bureaucracy for ah. no reason whatsoever will go away. Um, so I used to do that. Um, Central America, uh, Egypt is always a perennial one. I'm about to redo my Portugal tours, uh, which sold out in 16 minutes. Uh, I wonder why. <laughs> I think it's because we drank one of the towns dry. We have a lot of fun as well. Uh, we, have a lot of, we have a lot of work and we also Drink do a the lot town. of... <laughs> yeah, we are remembered in one village for drinking the restaurant dry, the only place to get a drink. And it was good wine. And it was cheap. Uh, and we also went up to the top of the mountain after drinking a bottle of wine. And we actually went to one of the some of the ritual graves and people stay there overnight, actually doing the resurrection thing in the uh, these rock graves. And, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and the Milky Way is right above you. Oh, like, my goodness. I saw them coming out of the mountain at the break of dawn. And they were like, wow, that was great. Uh, no hangover, by the way. It was incredible. Um, when it's real, when it's real, uh, I have theories and theories and theories on the on the the reason alcohol is the way it is now and why you need to buy the most pure substance that you can get um and have pure consciousness and intent and all these things yeah. your hangovers will just vanish you know <laughs> they don't exist anymore so um yeah. we just use it to lubricate the machinery not to over oil uh, that's that's the ticket uh, <laughs> you'll yeah, you smoke you, out the tailpipe it's not necessary exactly <laughs> yeah this stuff gets in the way i mean when you what I, I talk about the fringe benefits of working with sacred space and there are fringe benefits uh, if you're lucky enough you'll experience them and then after that you don't need all that stuff it just gets in the way of the real experience that's the, that's where the real magic is 
We like real magic. Uh, Indy, you have any closing thoughts, brother? Uh, I just want to thank you, Freddie, uh, for the amazing show today. And uh, there's so much more I need to learn from uh, all this wisdom and knowledge you've been sharing with us. And it's just been an honor. So thank you so much. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for being on. And I uh, love the Rastafarian uh, T-shirt with the, with the lion. Thank you. That is the, the funniest thing I've seen in a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sunny day out here, so I'm ready to celebrate life. Rasta Lion Man. <laughs> Rasta Man. Lion of Judah. <laughs> you know, there's a big, uh, if you go to, ever go to Egypt, if you go to Aswan, which is all the way down the Nile, there's a big Rastafarian community there. And there's all of these uh -huh. Bob Barley flags in the Egyptian ships. It's the funniest out of place thing. And of course, they were going <laughs> all the way down to Ethiopia. But it's funny, people are going around, these Egyptians are going around singing, uh, you know, Bob Marley songs. It's the funniest <laughs> part of the world. That's it's so funny. As well. I listened to a lot of Raga Jungle from England, which has a strong Rastafarian influence in England and Ireland. Yeah, man. So they get all around, I guess. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, be well, everybody. Cheers. Well. Hey, thanks. Thank Much you. love. Thank you for listening, Fire Tribe. You guys, go check out Freddie's work. I already know you're looking into it. You've already clicked the link. You're already subscribed to that 350-person waiting list and getting ready to go on a tour. And I'm getting ready to go play some guitar. So let's go. Yes. Cheers. Let's go. Cheers. Thank you, guys. <laughs>